1: This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words.
2: What do you like, Mr. Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music.
1: You pop craves youngsters, and welcome back to part three of episode 63 of Chart Music. Oh, a glorious romp through the 1972 post-Christmas special. Already, it's proven to be an absolute banger. It's going to get even better, so I'm here with my road dogs, Taylor Parks and Neil Kulkarnay. We're champing at the bit to get stuck in, so let's do just that. Hey!
2: There you go, it's been a fabulous year for Alice Cooper, hasn't it? So, uh, I hope and uh, say that you're having or uh, well, had a wonderful Christmas. We're still keeping the celebrations going right the way through until uh, the new year. Here's one that took seven months, believe it or not, to get to number one. Then in October, it was at number one for four consecutive weeks. It's called Moldy Old Doe from Lieutenant Pigeon. <laughs>
1: Tony, with a smattering of crumpets, bumble foxes way through a Christmas greeting, then remembers that it's 1972 and they didn't hang Christmas out like us, bunch of cunts. I'll tell you what,
3: Tony looks and sounds like he's been on the Valium, here like before <laughs> mm-hmm. he actually was. Yeah, already. Yeah, like yeah. Noel seen scurrying away from Tony's BBC paper cup of coffee, covering his mouth <laughs> with his tiny yeah. fingers. <laughs> tittering. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. <laughs>
1: He then tells us that they're going to keep at it all the way to New Year's before introducing an elephant's pregnancy of a song that (laughs) took ages to get going over here. Mouldy Old Dough by Lieutenant Pigeon. Formed in Coventry in 1967, Stavely Makepeace was a band formed by Rob Woodward, who had been a solo singer in the early 60s called Shell Naylor, and his classmate Nigel Fletcher, who recorded their songs in the front room of his mum's, Hilda Woodward, a typist at the local Jaguar factory who held down side jobs as a music teacher and was the resident pianist of the Stoke Ex-Servicemen's Club. In 1969, they put out their debut single, I Wanna Love You Like a Mad Dog, which failed to chart. No no wonder. (laughs) Disturbing thought, that is. (laughs) But a year later, their follow-up single, Edna, was picked up by Top of the Pops and shoved into their tip for the top section, but also failed to chart. By this time, the band were looking for an outlet for their less serious songs and to that end started recording under the name Lieutenant Pigeon, recruiting Hilda as the second pianist, and they were picked up by Decca, Shell Naylor's old label, in 1971. This is their debut single, and when it came out in February, it flopped in the UK but when it was picked up by a Belgian current affairs TV show and used as their theme tune, it shot to number one there, beating off a cover version by Dutch chanter's Lieutenant Parrot. Lick and pickerish, I ever heard (laughs) it. Emboldened by its Benny Lux success, Decker re-released it over here, broke out the Judy Zook satin tour jackets and pushed it hard on Radio Luxembourg for weeks until it was picked up and played on Radio 1 by Noel Edmonds. It finally entered the UK chart in September, number 38, then it soared to number 20, then soared again to number 4, and two weeks later, it pegged at the face of how can I be sure by David Cassadere and nested atop the very summit of Mount Pop and here they are with their double piano attack one more time. Fucking hell. Finally Mouldy old Doe enters the <laughs> arena. Quite
0: right. Oh man. The civic pride, honestly, Ali, it's pouring out of me right now. I mean, I've had City of Culture <laughs> here all year and it's all been shit and I've avoided all of it. But um, oddly enough, yeah, the moment that provides the most civic pride this year is talking about a 50-year-old record. Uh, yes. on <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I feel like Brian Kulkline lofting the FA Cup in 87. It, it, it's, <laughs> but you know what? God, the British charts are a strange fucking thing.
1: That's why we love them. And this
0: is surely the strangest number one record ever. Mm. It's just so fucking wrong. (laughs) The thing is, all the other highlights of this episode, and there's several, they kind of point forward to things. You know, where the fuck does this point? It doesn't point forward to other novelty records. And actually, I'd argue it's not a novelty record. No. It points back to old music, but in such a strange way that that speaks of the broken, ramshackle, falling-to-bits feel of 1972 Britain, Um, even more than anything more contemporary sort of sounded. Because this isn't old music lovingly preserved and recreated. It's old music that's kind of been left to decay and rot and get gamey and odd and seething with stuff. And you you, you, you can, you could, if you want, see mouldy old dough as harking back to kind of knees up some piano parties and, you know, yeah. the stomp of pub music that was still happening yeah. in pubs in 72, but
1: yeah. no. No, listening to this is like opening the door on a 70s pub, isn't it? Yeah, but... Just d- being hit in the face with a fog of fag smoke and stale booze and oh it's wonderful
0: it's wonderful and there's something really curdled about it it's just a bit off this record and that's a tremendously Mm. difficult thing to achieve i mean whenever i've read about this record and people have been looking for comparisons i've sort of read it being compared to kind of like winchester cathedral say for instance you know but come on that's clean that's easily digestible as a piece of retro clean and upbeat yeah as a piece of retro entertainment Uh,
1: carnaby street this is no
0: this isn't with
1: this this coventry high street (laughs)
0: well with this the title is literal. This is the this is the stuff of por- former pop being allowed to rot until it makes you feel queasy. And also, there's a faint melancholy to the madness of this. But
1: it's it's a good queasy, oh but though, without a doubt. It?
0: There's also the faint suggestion maybe this all this old shit there that we're re rotating is just old shit. <laughs> there's, there's a sort of critique to it as well. I mean, later on, as we'll see, we're, we're going to talk about a pop star later who accentuates the weirdness of old sources of old kind of influences. And I think mouldy old though, it recovers that sense of lunatic freedom in really old music that we assume that kind of only the counterculture can enable. So it's for me, it's not a novelty record. It's just a great record, and there's genuinely nothing else like it I mean I can't think of another mother-son band No, I can't think of a vocal like that growl of the hook which genuinely sounds like it could have been a tramp Wandering through the studio like yeah. like the whole record was built around a random tramp, like a Ga- Gavin Bryars thing or something. Um yeah. it's no accident that Fletcher and Woodward Jr. from this band are big Joe Meek fans. I think you can you can hear that. And Stavely Matepie's singles, by the way, you, you mentioned that that was the band before, you know, they called themselves Tony Pigeon. They are strange things. Um mm-hmm. they're not just resurrecting something long lost. I mean, you know, we forget, you know, Winifred Atwell, Mrs. Mills, they're alive and well in. 72 um yes. you know uh, but still putting out albums. still putting out albums which makes this triply weird and, and you know if you really want to know by the way for those of you who, who've only ever heard this song and want to go further i would get a left, uh, lieutenant slash lieutenant pigeon album but i'd actually go to the next single desperate dan flip it over yes. and play the b-side of that song opus 300 it's truly avant-garde nuttiness um, really yeah. freaky, freaky shit. This is one of the highlights of, I don't know, I'm going to call this Power Cut Pop, because um, yes. <laughs> that's really what it seems power to be.
1: Power Cut Pop. Oh.
0: <laughs> you know, I mean, th- th- there's odd things in the audience, as there is throughout you know, this episode, during this record being played. I, I did double-take thinking the chap in the green jacket was Rod Stewart. Um, but but it's very telling as well that the Batroom Boys they don't put any strange trippy effects on this record. There's no need. No. There's no, no need. There's no it's point. fucking weird enough, and not to make things like too cov. But. I do want to stress, as, as somebody who's DJ'd in Coventry a lot, this is obviously a staple, and, and it has yes. to be played, you know, at virtually every cough party. But fuck me, I, th- <laughs> I think this is a great record to DJ with anywhere, especially if you drop it late in the evening, really late, when people mm. are fucked, because it yes. lurches, this record. It's got this tremendous yeah. sense of sort of drunken imbalance. You feel slightly pissed hearing it, Um, I am ferociously proud that this bizarre number one came out of the city I call home. Um, But it is is a very cov record, I have to say. But what a moment. What a moment. I mean, thank God
1: for Belgian world in (laughs) action. Yeah. (laughs) I would love to know what TV show that was. I would kill (laughs) to see it on YouTube, to see this played over footage of i don't know youths throwing stones at tanks in northern ireland or vietnam bombing raids or god knows what but what a thing to put on your current affairs tv show man
3: yeah it was something <laughs> kicking off in antwerp
1: yes <laughs> See, i
3: do like this record but i sort of took against it a bit on this mm. watching because right. it bothered cool. my now geriatric cat who responds with bug eyes and a grim stare to any sound in the frequency range of bird song or mouse right. squeak including the title sequence Ooh. of soul train um oh. the oh. squeaking of my exercise bike uh and the penny whistle on this down ah. on the first two i told her to lump it but <laughs> sooner or later i have to back her up right but she likes this record about as much as she would like an actual pigeon so uh <laughs> To, you know. but i mean look yeah for a while this record was bigger than kate bush's hands so it must have been <laughs> you know people must have connected with it on some level yeah. and, ah, ha, 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 ha. and i can see why you know i can hear it in the the timbre of the tack piano and especially the mm. fact that like the strange doubling effect when you've got two of them going at once
1: I like the glitter band
3: yeah, it, it, but it creates a, a slightly eerie effect, which is pleasant and a bit unsettling. It's like a flat beer British approximation of Brian Wilson's Spectral Piano on the Smile Sessions, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. It's not completely absurd to think that that might be what drew a lot of people into this record. And that uh, mm-hmm. not every sale of it was to old granny grave clothes, you know, buying it with the yeah. money she should have been saving to piss away on social care, you know. It's like this yeah. there is something really enticing and intriguing about this record. Like, even before you see the band. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's grandma glam, isn't it? It's, it's glam-more. <laughs> and and glam-more we love you. So, like, to
3: anyone listening to this who can't see this, right, you've got um, Woodward Jr., on the piano, dressed as Robin Hood, a little mm. little nod from Coventry to Nottingham. Uh-huh. There, um, yeah. the, you got um, Kevin Ungodly on the drums. You got Fletcher <laughs> on the drums, uh, dressed like a, a pirate. Um, mm. Best of all, you got Woodward Senior playing the piano, dressed as a witch. Yes, she looks amazing. <laughs> it's just this kind yes, of huge she old lady. Dressed in like a, a crap Halloween witch outfit, just with a permanent grid on her face all the way through. I was thinking, this is actually who the Eagles wrote witchy woman about. I'm, <laughs> I'm surprised Mary Whitehouse wasn't writing to the Director of Public Prosecutions about this. I think you'll find, if you consult your Bible, it says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Um, look, I urge you to take the strongest possible action immediately. Yeah. Like, how brilliant would it have been if the audience was whipped up into like a witch craze frenzy yeah. and became a mob and dragged her off the piano and started ducking her. It'd be yeah.
1: amazing. <laughs> what are her familiars? Black cat and a stoat, Oh, a, a pigeon <laughs> on the piano. <laughs> that was her familiar. Well,
3: although... Mm. It, it, disturbingly just as witches were said to do to their familiars she did actually suckle one of these people um so i wouldn't necessarily (laughs) be against giving her a go on the ducking stall just to be on the safe side um but the terrible thing actually if you look at her closely what she really looks like is arthur marshall from call my bluff In yeah drag. yeah she does like uh it's like any second the music's gonna stop and she's gonna go well now come with me if you will back to the court of george Second, the last of the foreign-born monarchs who uh if you were to enter the court of george Second, you would have been expected to be carrying your condyloma because your condyloma was a kind of oh fucking i give up Doing call my bluff gags, fucking Jesus Christ! This was not how this was meant to pan out for me. <laughs> too late, too late for it's too late for marriage now. <laughs> Next time I get in a big black car, they'll be loading me in through that hatchback. Never mind. Well, I'm only joking. I, I couldn't afford a funeral.
1: <laughs> do we know how old Hilda Woodward is at this time? The I do, and I was
0: startled.
1: Go on. I think she's 58. 58. <laughs> 50 <laughs> fucking 8. According to the papers of the time, even more shocking there, she's actually 52, which is one year younger than I am now. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not having that. I am not a- <laughs> And that is a fucking dagger of ice down the spine. It's awful, man, because this year has been filled with... Uh, people i know turning 52 and Mm. every time they do i'm on facebook saying happy birthday oh by the way you're the same age as her on this (laughs) but no when she died in 1999 her age was given as 85 meaning she would be at least 57 right Right.
0: (laughs) she still looks about 15 years
1: older than that though doesn't she yeah i know it's not harsh paper round (laughs) but
3: shouldn't that actually make you feel good about yourself
1: no, no, when you're 53, Taylor, nothing makes you feel good about yourself. <laughs> yeah, trust yeah, me, just yeah. you wait.
0: I played that piano that she played. Oh, no, man. oh, yes, it's in the For museum, me. it's in the Coventry Museum. Um, wow. uh, we meant the oh. Lieutenant yeah. Pigeon Museum. <laughs> <laughs> we have a Coventry Music Museum, and I tend to avoid it because, um, you know, you know how Scar. Um, has basically become big, bald, old, white bloke's music. It's yeah, kind of yeah. one of that sort of stuff. But that piano's in there. Had a little tinkle. Only the second famous piano that I've ever played. Um, the first famous piano. It's not that famous, actually, the other one. It's not as good. But I played um, Agatha Christie's piano Ooh. in her um, in her home in Greenway in Cornwall. Wow. Um, there was a sign up that said, feel free to have a tinkle. So I did. Ooh. Um, so, yeah, that's two
3: famous pianos I play. Oh, no, Jesus. I was just thinking, if it's sign said, feel free to have a tinkle, you stood there and just started pissing all over the piano. You go, what, what? Yeah.
1: Look at the sign. You ever played on a famous piano, Taylor? Uh,
3: yes, I played on the piano on A Day in the Life.
1: Four. Wow, man. I
3: don't mean I played the piano on A Day in the Life. That would be quite the claim to say, <laughs> pre-birth.
1: Jeez, that's put me back in my box <laughs> <laughs> I mean the thing about this song is, as soon as you hear it you're into it and then you hear the bloke going oh, the older. and you just think "Oh, this, this can't get any better <laughs> <laughs> and then they pop up on top of the pops and they look like this yeah, and you, you, yeah. you just, you've just you just surrendered to them haven't you <laughs> Totally. every Completely now and again knowledge. there's a moment where the British people collectively actually get something right and one of the prime examples is putting this at number one I oh, know it's
0: fucking mental that this got to number one, but of course it makes total sense as well. Yes, that it, that absolute it would.
1: Absolute total
0: sense. The thing about um, Lieutenant Pigeon, in in a sense similar to other acts that we're seeing in this episode, they've had pasts. You mm. know, they've had pasts that they're coming out of. They're not neophytes in the biz, as it were. I mean, another thing to seek out when when seeking out other stuff uh lieutenant pigeon related please people find um a track by shell Naylor. um yes. shell Naylor was the name of rod woodward basically from lieutenant pigeon when he was signed to Decker in the 60s um mm-hmm. at age 17 he did a song called one fine day which was actually written by uh dave davis from the kinks right. and uh, came out as a single in 64 with jimmy page on guitar oh. and it's a fucking tune um right. do seek that one out as well that should go on the video playlist i would say
1: There was actually a tabloid kerfuffle in late October, which makes the story even better. Uh, A front-page article in The Sunday People entitled, Mouldy Old Muddle. Granny Hilda Woodward's pop career struck a discordant note yesterday. Michael Jerry, a 19-year-old musician, claimed that he and not Granny Woodwood Wood played the piano in the recording of Moldy Old Doe, which has been top of the charts for three weeks. Pianist Michael has instructed solicitors to take action against the group, claiming he is entitled to payment or royalties. Michael sat down at the piano in his home in Burbage's Lane, Coventry, played mouldy old dough and said, there, you can see it was me. (laughs) Rubbish. It was me on piano, Mrs. Woodward, who is 52, said today. She sat down at the piano at her home in Kingsway, Coventry and said, It was definitely me. Rob shouted me out of the kitchen and I played just like I'm doing now. Rob Woodward said, It's true that Mike sat in for one session, but for technical reasons we had to scrub that tape and send another one to Decker. I called in mum for the second one. Two amazing things coming out there. Number one, this woman's shaved six years off her age Yeah, in a doomed attempt to appear younger. Yeah, somewhat
3: unconvincingly, it has to be said.
1: And Lieutenant Pigeon have gone, oh, you know, what we really need to get this song up the charts is pretend that my mum's played on it. <laughs> Insane. Probably
3: the best bit in this whole performance is where the bass player, Johnson, creeps up behind uh, Fletcher on the drums, pulls his tricorn hat down over his eyes, in response to which Fletcher seems to bark, fuck you. (laughs) No. Yeah, perhaps forgetting where he was for a moment, which is easily done during a Top of the Pops appearance. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Did British people say fuck you in 1972, though? I don't know. Fuck off, yes. Fuck you, I contend not.
3: Hmm. Mm. Actually, no, maybe the best bit is near the end, at at the beginning of Woodward Jr.'s big closing penny whistle solo during the drop. Mm. um, Something goes a bit wrong, possibly something brown ale related. Um, mm. And the whole thing just collapses, and there's a Yeah, oh, yeah, that yeah. is
1: the absolute worst case of granny claps in the entire <laughs> yes. history yeah. of the top of the pot. It's just, Fantastic. oh, it's gloriously shambolic. Yeah, isn't but it? two
3: seconds, which you can reasonably say is the most musically challenging and disruptive moment in the whole show. <laughs> yeah, all the granny <laughs> clappers are totally thrown off. And in fact, Granny herself ends up turning the beat around. Still with that grin yeah. on her face, and she's clapping. On then again, people <laughs> that age do tend to clap on the on beat anyway, don't they? But yeah. yeah, the demented smile doesn't falter for a second. No, I don't know if anyone's got round to watching the amazing film *Frightmare* that I was going on about last time, but I would definitely have cast Sheila Keith in the Lieutenant Pigeon biopic, <laughs> uh, which will mean nothing <laughs> to most people, but if you know, you know.
1: But fucking hell, what an amazing tune this is. Yeah, I mean, look, the Queen's on her last legs. Let's, you know, let's not beat about the bush. <laughs> when she goes, get rid of that shit national anthem that we have and have this, man. Yeah, oh, yeah. man.
0: I mean, the thing is with the vocal, the thing <laughs> yes, is with that vocal, yeah. it, it, it is the missing link between Albert Steptoe and punk rock. It, it's There's something yeah. resistant about it. It's not just fun. I love it when the camera, by the way, in this episode, I think it's just before the granny claps go badly wrong. It does that thing of, of centering in on Fletcher's face right in the middle of the screen. And he doesn't do anything. He just laughs. Um, <laughs> yeah. They all seem a bit pissed, actually.
1: A bit half cut. They're fucking about, but it's all right. You can fuck about to this song. Yeah. He sings Dirty Old Man instead of Mouldy Old <laughs> Dough at yeah, one point. yeah. It's
0: wonderful. It suits the song. And this, I mean, this record in Cov has gone nowhere. It's always been about, it's always been on every jukebox in a way. Mm, Uh, Whereas in the rest of the country, it hasn't. I mean, a mate told me that when Joe Royal used to manage Oldham Athletic um, in the late eighties and early nineties, this was the track that they played when they used to come out onto the pitch. (laughs) (laughs) But then of course they got promoted. To, the, to, to Division One and that and then it got replaced with fanfare for the, for the common man by ELP. Oh, you know? fuck.
1: <laughs> Anything else to say about?
0: This? Yeah, I was going to say Come we talk about the national anthem. Mm. One of the
3: many things that's wrong with our current national anthem is like you know leaving aside all the lyrics and everything. Is the fact that it begins with a drum roll of indeterminate length Mm. which means that everybody comes in out of time. Yes. Always. Every time. How's that supposed to give you any national pride? No. Right. To at least have this at least the bit where everybody goes out of time is at the end. Mm. At which point everyone's (laughs) just waiting for it to finish anyway.
1: So moldy old Doe would spend four weeks at number one, eventually shooed away by Claire, by Gilbert O'Sullivan. It would become the second best-selling single of 1972, behind Amazing Grace by the band of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards, selling over 790,000 copies. It's now most commonly used by unionist marching bands in Northern Ireland. (laughs) me, <laughs> Okay now. Cuz it's got a bit of pipe and drum in it I suppose.
0: Uh yeah, I guess so.
1: blood. <laughs> <laughs> the follow up Desperate Dan is currently number 34 in the chart and would will get to number 17 in January of 1973, but they never troubled the charts again. Although the band are active to this day and will be releasing their next single on February the 18th, 2022. 50 years to the day that Mouldy Old Doe came out. Here we go!
2: And from Lieutenant Pigeon to one of the more emotional sounds of 72, Roberta Flack. The
4: first time ever I saw your face
1: After a weird transformation where we get to see the blurred-out vision of what is presumably the top of Noel Edmonds' head... We transmogrify very quickly into the darkness at the top of the top of the pop studio that David always goes on about. As Edmunds puts his British accent on and introduces one of the more emotional sounds of 72. The First Time I Ever Saw Your Face by Roberta Flack. Born in Black Mountain, North Carolina in 1937, Roberta Flack was a child prodigy on the piano and became the youngest person to receive a music scholarship at Howard University at the age of 15. After graduating four years later, she became a music and English teacher in Washington DC whilst trawling the music clubs at night, playing and singing jazz, where she was discovered by the pianist Les McCann. He set her up with an audition for Atlantic Records and after being signed up, she put out her debut LP, First Take, in 1969. Two years later, while Flat was struggling to make any sort of a dent in any US chart, Clint Eastwood picked this cut from her first LP, a cover of the 1957 folk song written by Ewan McConk for his bit on the side Peggy Seeger, which had already been covered by Peter, Paul and Mary and the Kingston Trio and used it in the film Play Misty for Me. Released as a single, it shot up the US charts, spending six weeks at number one in April and May. And in the UK, it became her first hit, getting to number 14 in July. And here's another chance to see that original performance. Isn't it telling chaps that it's Tony that gets lumbered with mouldy old dough and Edmonds gets to introduce the serious quality stuff?
3: Yeah, which is weird because I would associate these two records uh, completely opposite to
0: that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah.
3: yeah. So we start with The Elephant in the Room, which is her amazing haircut.
0: Yes.
1: Oh, yes.
3: I wrote in my notes, Flack, the Princess Leah Pioneer and any rappers listening feel free to take that line because I have to say its flow is exquisite she
1: rocks rough and stuff with her Afro puss yeah she's got
3: these two huge side bunches with every strand of hair gathered up and scraped over basically if she'd drawn faces on both of those bunches it would have looked like she had three heads it's fucking yeah. amazing. It's like yes. a Beats by dry <laughs> yeah. haircut. Yeah.
1: She looks so yeah. great. She's wisely got them round her ears. They're quite low because with that look, if you have it any higher, you start looking like Mickey Mouse or Chairman Mouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there
0: is that danger. Yes. And if you have it
1: even higher, you look like Dave Lee Travis in 1981 <laughs> with some deely boppers. <laughs> but what can we say about
0: this? Not a lot because it's a brilliant... Apart
1: from it's fucking amazing. Oh, it's a good song, yeah. you know, this, it but really I think was. it
0: was waiting for it. It was waiting for Roberta to do it. Yeah. I don't like this. I saw so and McColl's reasons for writing it um, and his hatred of all of the yes. cover versions of it.
1: Particularly hated Elvis's one, didn't he? He said it sounded like Romeo singing to Juliet, who's on top of the post office tower.
0: Yeah. And, and he had a section in his record collection called the Chamber of Horrors, which yeah. contained all the covers of this song. Um, <laughs> but which seems a tad harsh. Considering they paid for that part of his house. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and also I think there's something a bit sanctimonious about you and in general and, and then suddenly writing this love song, but it was waiting for Roberta Flack to do it because this is a lovely version. Off First Take, which is a great album, I would say, old I Told Jesus, is the track. It's amazing, that track. Mm. But this is beautiful. But there's not much to say about it, because it's just a really competent performance by an amazing looking person yeah. of a beautiful song that she absolutely nailed.
1: I mean, it only got to number 14 in the charts, and it's here, obviously, as a, a bit of a mam sop. But, you know who cares when it's this good mm. something's got to follow mouldy old dough oh god yeah you need your heart rate to yeah. reduce a little bit yeah I, I, and this does the job <laughs> more than adequately to my mind
3: yeah Top of the Pops always at some point has to slow things yes. down a little with a, a, with ballad, a beautiful
1: song recorded by a beautiful lady a beautiful lady with a
3: beautiful voice <laughs> and, uh, and ra- you know rather this than almost any of the other available options oh god, from yeah. 1972 because it's a very 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 good record and it only becomes a piss break in the context of this episode <laughs> yeah, yeah, because completely. of what most of the rest of the episode is like it doesn't fit because a mood has already been created which is no. not mm. this mood and is not complemented by this mood and it does deserve better because the original recording is one of the warmest and most intimate records you mm. could ever hear and even here the top of the pops orchestra can't mangle it no. because it's too simple <laughs> yeah, to screw yeah, yeah. and because of the soulfulness is carried in her voice and her performance rather than in the arrangement, which makes it so irritating that so many hack singers have seen this as a great song to cover. I mean, I know, yeah, this is a cover, but they tend to cover this version. And it's always a sort of screwed up face and splayed out hand held out in front of them mm. type singers you know I wouldn't have minded if Faust had done a version or <laughs> yeah. you know Les Rallies denude or something mm. but if you're gonna do this song in the Roberta Flack style you'd better be at least as good a singer as Roberta yeah. Flack yeah. are you as good a singer as Roberta Flack and if the answer is Christ no then <laughs> go and cover Yellow Submarine mm. instead right yes. because Otherwise, you're going up to Botticelli's Birth of Venus and you're pasting a gurning selfie over her head.
0: You're absolutely right. <laughs> it. and All the people who cover this song, or at least cover the Roberta Flack version, they always do everything that Roberta Flack doesn't do. Yeah, they add extra yeah. notes and, and, you know, they, they put all this melisma in it. She never does it. She keeps it clear. Yeah. She yeah. keeps it simple. It's just beautiful.
3: Yeah. And it's because they can't do this because it's not a trivial thing to stretch out your voice like this Mm. so the individual notes begin to dissolve like aeroplane trails, you know, Mm. and to do it in a way which demands an emotional response. And, so yeah, singing this song the way almost all modern singers would and do, it's a grotesque thing to do. (laughs) Neil's right, though. It's a terrible shame. Almost every time we get a great black American female singer on here, we all agree that it's one of the best things on the programme. Oh, if this um, was on
1: any other episode, we'd have been fucking raving about it.
3: Yeah, but but none of us have all that much to, to say about it, and it's always the case.
0: Yeah, because there's nothing to laugh about or take the piss out of, you know? Oh, yeah. you, you well, know well, I mean, oh, is
1: that who we are? <laughs>
0: <nearly>. <laughs> no, but you know, it is just... <laughs> when, when you do just... I mean, look, look, like we talked about Gary Glitter earlier, okay? Now, that is a great record, but... It's not a great record made by a beautiful artist or anything like that. There's all kinds of extraneous shit not. going on. With this, this is as as pure and simple as this episode's going to get.
1: Yeah, it's just a woman yeah. doing a job. Yeah. Which is turning up on the telly and being mint with a brilliant record.
0: I'm sure you're aware of its use on December the 15th of this uh, year, 1972. Go on. Well, the first time I ever saw your face, I think, yeah, it's played as the wake-up music on flight day nine to the astronauts aboard Apollo seventeen on their last uh, day in oh, lunar orbit yeah, yeah, yeah. before returning oh. to Earth. So basically, this was the last song played. Uh, that was the last human exploration of the moon, and this was the tune yeah. that um the tune that brought them home. Oh, yeah. it
3: makes a change from country music, which is what they usually play Yeah, the yeah. Apollo. Should
1: mission. have been moldy old. Days, <laughs> <though>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a problem. It's a great performance, it's a great song, but we've just had mouldy old dough, and it's like, oh, why haven't you got a, an older white woman playing the piano next to you as well, man?
3: <laughs> the thing is, I worried for a bit about this phenomenon of these records that we've got nothing to say about, because I was thinking, is it my background in writing mostly about rock and mm. pop that's mm. limiting me, or worse still, can I only write or talk about people whose experiences and influences are like mine. But no, because I could write about Roots Reggae and Dub from now until spring, and I'm fairly sure that the church community of Black Mountain, North Carolina, is more like suburban, lower-middle-class Britain than the rocker community Mm. of Washington Gardens, Kingston, Jamaica. (laughs) So I think it's just simply that a record like this does not leave much to be said. No, um, if you're in a crowded room and this plays and then it stops, nobody says anything for a minute. No. Right? which is not the case if you put on naughty, naughty, naughty songs. <laughs> <Bajosani, laughs> Certainly not. Right? It's a, this just this doesn't need much commentary. And I've always been a little bit dubious in the past about the way that most writers who specialise in writing about soul or R and B of this period always seem to focus more on biographical or contextual Mm. detail Mm. than digging into the actual music. But now I think I understand it better. Yeah. Because, I mean, look, the the biographical and contextual detail is often stuff that I don't know enough about to hold forth on like an expert or it's stuff that I don't feel particularly well qualified to comment on. Mm. So I tend to get a bit stuck, you know. So I guess in future chart musics, these ladies are going to keep appearing and I'm going to keep saying this is brilliant. Yeah. Let's move on. and Unless we get Nelson George to join the team <laughs> yeah. or something, you know. I'd like to
0: hear him on BA Robertson. Doors always open, Nelson. Perfection is difficult to talk about, you know. And, and yeah. for many of us, the most perfect music ever made was 70s black pop. So so yeah. that's why whenever we encounter it, not whenever we encounter it, but quite often when we encounter it, we can't really go beyond that. This is perfect, no. you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is surprising, though, that, yeah, it's introduced by Nolan, not Tony, because Tony's the soul guy. So, I wonder if he was slightly gutted about that.
1: But Noel's the serious music guy. (laughs) That's why he's trying to put himself at the minute. He is leaning into the Americanisms at the moment, isn't he? He's not found his voice, Mm, mm, which is a very mm. annoying and twee one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, the first time I ever saw your face would win a Grammy a year later for Record of the Year... And as Neil said, two weeks before this episode was aired, was played as the wake-up music for the crew of Apollo seventeen, ending the last bit of contact humanity has had with the moon. The follow-up, of sorts, was a duet with Donny Hathaway, Where Is The Love, which got to number 29 in August. And she'd roar back one time in 1973 with Killing Me Softly With His Song, which got to number 6 in March of 1973.
2: Uh, Roberta Flack there. It's party time here at uh, Top of the Pops. Our cameraman has dressed up as Father Christmas. This is Richard from our sound department. Evening, Richard. <laughs> evening. <laughs> <laughs> it's rave up time once again. Mama, we're all crazy now. The fabulous Slade!
1: <laughs> oh! Tonek. Back amongst the crumpets, reminds us that it's party time and then introduces us to Richard from the sound department who has come dressed like one of Jack Reagan's on-off girlfriends in the Sweeney who sings in a club. (laughs) He then declares it rave-up time until a huge cheer from the kids introduces Mama, we're all crazy now, by Slate.
3: Yeah, but it's hard not to focus on the sheer ecstasy Plastered all over Richard's face throughout Ooh. this little link section, I mean, yeah, life's full of surprises, Richard
1: <laughs> It's funny because at the end of Roberta Flack, as soon as she stops singing, you hear this laugh, and she's got a smile on her face, and and you think it's her doing yeah that, like, yeah, I did think it which, which is really odd because it's like, oh, I've just done this love song, ha 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 ha, look at me pissing this out of my ass, yeah, yeah. but it's actually Richard who's laughing.
3: You can't stop.
1: We've done Slade loads on chart music, and this, their eighth single under the name of Slade, is the follow-up to Take Me Back Home, which got to number one for a week in July and featured on the Christmas Day episode. It's the lead-off single from their third LP, Slade, with a Y and a question mark and it came out on the 1st of November and was inspired by Chuck Berry when the band saw him play live earlier in the year and noted that he'd stop singing from time to time and let the audience take over and they decided that they wanted some of that in their repertoire. When the single was finished, the band and manager Chas Chandler told their label Polydor to get their arses in gear and make it the first single to enter the charts at number one since the Beatles did it with Get Back three years earlier. But the label was convinced that that was an impossible task in the climate of 1972 and were therefore knocked Bandair when it entered the charts at number two in September. And a week later, it toppled. You wear it well by Rod Stewart as the toppermost of the poppermost. And here is a repeat of their original performance. That cheer that goes up that tells you everything you need to know about Slade in nineteen seventy-two. Chaps, the People's Band. Yeah, and we hadn't had one of them in a very long time. But probably the Beatles w- would have been the last band that it was generally considered by everyone were fucking mint and skill.
0: And that's why it's so smart for them to write a record, which writes the crowd into the song, um, into the process. Yes, But yeah, I mean, absolutely. This is half about this performance in particular of this song is half about looking at Slade and half about looking at the amazing audience. And and I've got to send up the kind of, um, the retrospective fancying someone klaxon here, because uh, I I am actually hugely curious about that aforementioned total mum that we see in a blue dress who has a silver belt on, who's Mm. cutting a rug to this and clearly knows the words. Who is she? Where is she from? What's her story? But just after the camera picks her up, there's a girl to her right in in a sort of spangly diamante long dress, who's the spit of Diana Rigg as Emma Peel, oh, I, fell, I, Ooh, fell, yes. I fell hard for her. I I, I really fell in love there. Uh, the boys don't know how to dance to this, actually, in the audience. No. There's two lads at the back in slay T-shirts who you'd think would be going mental, who were just sort of stood there, who almost look like roadies. Um, yes, but, but I
1: think they might. They well may be roadies, well be roadies, you know.
0: but the girls certainly know how to dance to this. Mm. In an episode full of records for kids with, with those jitters in their legs, this delivers massively, a massive overload moment. Yes. Yeah, I've got mixed feelings
3: about the audience on this because there's a few too many silver top hats down the front there. Mm. It looks like the lair of a monopoly thief. Um somebody <laughs> should somebody should tell those girls, don't imitate, be inspired. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, take a lesson from the coolest person in the crowd there, that woman who looks like the home secretary's wife. Yeah. Um, <laughs> doing a slinky dance it might just be my age but yeah there is something interesting going on there. very much so it's,
1: it's awful man the older you get uh, the older the, the the people you fancy <laughs> I would say
3: that's not awful that is merciful <laughs> yeah yeah
1: actually right Heidi High when it first came on I really fancied Tracer mm. then I started fancying Gladys and nowadays I'm, I'm looking at fucking Yvonne going are well, you alright you know <laughs> terrifying fucking it'll be Amy Turtle next <laughs> no
0: everyone grows up to love Ruth Maddock a little bit more I think mm, no, yeah sure. yeah <laughs> But in terms of the audience
3: here, yeah, I'm. I was quite amused and very faintly disturbed by that small gang of lads in Slade t-shirts at the back of the mm. stage because they just got their arms folded. Yeah, yeah, stone-faced, emotionless. They like security of the first world um, <laughs> or security of Wolverhampton, which is at least
0: <laughs> near the first world. Yeah, and what's weird is they stay completely still, even. At the moment when this record goes over, spills over, which is, of course, I mean, yeah. of course, the key moment in this record is near the end. It's the "mama, mama, 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 yeah" bit. Yeah, you know, the the choruses have always threatened to give you that overload, but they don't quite deliver it until the end. And Noddy, of mm. course, just has the best ultimate rock and roll voice for that kind of moment which isn't to say that the lead-up to those moments isn't great we've already said you know 72 and amazing guitar intros this song starts amazingly starts as well as schools out and in a weird way in terms of in a mild sense parent and authority kind of threatening sentiments this is almost like a twin record with that albeit with the caveat that with Slade you never get the feeling of us and them it's just us and I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I I do like the kind of the frantic bingy British feel about hedonism of this record about getting the scotch mm-hmm. and the pints in and getting wankered very quickly you know yeah. <laughs> don't stop now come on another drop come on full fire water mm-hmm. won't hurt me but God I mean for me it's all about those ending choruses and and by the end of it We're in a weird place with this record, really. I mean, when it fades, it's like Acid House or something. It's just the the beats are nuts and the kids are hysterical. So it's so good, I can't even begrudge it. I know this might not be everyone's favourite Slade tune, but I think it's one of the best they ever did. And I think it's one of the best off yeah. Slade as well. And it's so good. I can't even begrudge it stopping Children of the Revolution getting to number one. I, 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 I think mm. it's wonderful. It's really telling in this period, of course, that, you know, the only... I, I think trying to break America is eventually what kills Slade a little bit. Um, yeah. and the only US kind of hack boosting them at the time was Lester Bangs, which makes yeah. total, total sense. Um, mm-hmm. they were never really going to crack America because they're not. They don't do country rock, really. They're not loud, heavy metal. They're not quite no. bubblegum. They're not quite mainstream. And also there's that yeah. traditional suspicion in America of funny costumes and stuff. But, um, mm. yeah, I think that's what eventually breaks the band. But this is this is a band getting close to their zenith, I would say.
1: Slade or Slade's fans were really fucking organised. You know, they had a rough idea when the band would be on top of the post mm. months before. And so they, they they just bombard the BBC with applications. So that's why you see a lot of people wearing the slate right. T-shirts and stuff like that. And of course, the band might have lobbed one or two out. But yeah, they were organised, like the S1Ws. Yeah. I think a big part of that is probably Chaz Chandler as well. But yeah, I mean, as as far as the performance goes, possibly the debut of the Mirrored Topper on Node with Dave Hill in a matching full-length coat, and the people in the gallery know what's expected mm. of them. You know, there's loads of Dutch angles and lots of mad Stone Age visual effects. <laughs> Not the kind of effects you'd expect with a, a band like Slade, but it kind of works. Yeah, it does kind of work because
0: the whole record's about getting unhinged. Yes. And, uh, and you know, we're fucking mentalists. So, and we're all mental. Um, so, yeah, the increasing kind of trippiness of the visual suits it, actually.
3: Yes. Yeah, I was thinking, the fact that Slade were... So clearly wearing pale blue Y-fronts under the sequins <laughs> and tart yes. is the best and, in a way, the worst thing about... I mean, I mean to the extent that there is a worst thing about Slade because the tension between the, the euphoria and the, the dizzy party whirl on the one hand and, on the other, the, the gurning uh, rootsiness is what gave them that enormous and, and unique power. But it also placed a bit of a limit on how far they could take it mm. not that I think that there's a problem with making you know a run of like eight or nine of the best singles of the 70s you know and then stopping but I'm actively looking for negatives here just to open the conversation <laughs> up a little bit because we all know what we all think of Slade so yeah whenever I hear what is probably my favorite Slade song which is uh, how does it feel which is right at the end of their period of being big, Mm. I always Mm. find myself thinking they had the talent and were a sufficiently deceptively musical group. Mm. They could have followed up the three-year chart blitz with a move into something a bit more emotionally affecting without losing the fizz, right? Mm. Which is something that only the very great groups ever do because it involves a level of talent or, or a type of talent that's categorically different from the talent required to make Mama We're All Crazy Now. And they had that. But what's also required, which I don't think they ever had, is a kind of starry-eyed, otherworldly aspect to your nature. Mm. Because to really do this, you have to slip the chains which have thus far held your talent in place and forget all the faces in front of you and start thinking like an artist, which can be... Very dangerous. I mean, it can be very dangerous to your creative hygiene and it can be even more dangerous to your bank balance, right? But it's a chance you have to take and I don't think they ever would have. If they'd suddenly come up with Eleanor Rigby or Strawberry Fields, I don't think they'd have gone with it, right? I'm not sure they could have taken themselves seriously for long enough. Mm. But if you don't make that leap into the darkness, there will be a limit on what you can do and there's a time limit on how long people are going to want it from you.
1: The only time they ever did that was when they made a film, right?
3: Which is brilliant
1: because everybody was expecting a a black country Beatles film, right? Mm. And Robin Nash, who by that time was running Top of the Pops, collared them afterwards and said, "Do you, you realise you've made a huge mistake here? People don't want you being serious." Yeah,
3: I know, but it's what a great film, what an amazing film it is. Yeah, you know, but it just meant that instead of moving on into doing something else inevitably Slade end up fucking around in America and slowly devolving into a crap-hard rock band, you know, as the audience fell away. And, I mean, nobody criticises Pilot or Dead Mm. or Alive for not Mm. turning into a different group, and nobody should. Mm. It's only a side issue here. It's just because of those tantalising hints that Slade running out of hit juice needn't have been the end, you know, but those... Mm those pale blue wire fronts were
0: chafing. And- Completely. The, the thing is, Taylor, you used the phrase there um, uh, regarding their musical complexity and stuff. That's the thing about Slade. Musically, they're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. When you When you listen to this record, this is not a straight ahead stomp of a record, even though the effect is, is deeply physical. Yeah. It's really quite complicated what the drummer and the bassist are doing. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's a fucking clever record in that regard. They yeah. definitely had the capabilities of, like Taylor says, pushing into perhaps a, a new lease of life. Mm-hmm. But they had this run of amazing singles, a run of singles that could have lasted a band a decade, yeah. you know, uh, packed into a year or two. Yeah, um, And yeah, yeah. try to break America fucked him.
1: Yeah. If you want to understand how musical Slade are, go and listen to an Oasis cover version of one of their songs.
3: Well, yeah. They were yeah. more than just the Oasis it's okay to like.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Mama, we're all crazy now, would spend three weeks at number one, yielding the floor to How Can I Be Sure by David Cassidy. And although Polydor had started to accept the challenge of an instant number one and worked up a marketing strategy, the follow-up, Goodbye to Jane, another album track, entered the chart at number eight in November of this year, got to number two three weeks later, and is currently at number six. And contrary to Brian Connolly's prediction, Slade pissed 1973 out of their arses, racking up three number ones that went straight in at the top people's band
0: people's band and you know what when you read interviews with people like Bolan or Brian Ferry in this period Mm. they all repeatedly say oh I don't want to enter the sort of hellscape that Slade are living in I don't you know I don't want to to do that Slade there's a real snottiness about Slade uh, especially from their contemporaries
3: because of the hellscape that Slade are living in what like next door to the girls school yes (laughs) (laughs) oh I didn't know when I moved in
2: Sonically and visually exciting acts in the world. Slay there and Mama, we're all crazy now. You know, one of the most difficult things to do in the recording business is make a comedy record. An even more difficult thing to do is to make a successful comedy record. It's nigh on impossible to get one to number one. But January, this year, he did it. Benny Hill and Ernie. You
0: can hear the feet, pain, as they raced across the ground and the clatter of the wheels as they spun round and round. And he galloped into Market Street, his badge upon his chest, his name was Ernie, and he drove the fastest milk cart in the West.
1: Edmunds, flanked by two girls, is clearly being stalked by Beard Twat now, and we see him adjusting his pubic adornment in a comedy manner. What makes it worse is that he now has a mate, sporting a red nose and looking very pleased with himself. Unfazed, Edmonds tells us how hard it is to make a comedy record and it's nigh impossible to get it to number one. But he knows someone who did. Benny Hill with Erna, the fastest milkman in the West. Born Alfred Hawthorne Hill in Southampton in 1924, Benny Hill was a former shop lad at Woolworths and a milkman who became a stage manager with a touring review before he was called up in 1942 and spent the rest of the war as a mechanic. After transferring to Enser in 1944, he changed his surname in tribute to Jack Benny and became a radio performer when he got back to Civvy Street. In 1950, he transferred to television and by 1971 had appeared in five films, including Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines and The Italian Job and The Star of the Benny Hill Show, which began on BBC One in 1955 and had transferred to ITV in 1969. Like most TV performers of the 60s, Hill signed a record deal with Pi in 1961 and had already racked up three chart hits, Gathering the Mushrooms, which got to number 12 in March of 1961, Transistor Radio, which got to number 24 in June of the same year, and Harvest of Love, which made it to number 20 in June of 1963. And after he moved to ITV, he was picked up by Columbia Records for the LP Words and Music. This single... The lead-off cut from that LP was written by Hill for his Thames show in 1970 and scampered up the charts in November of 1971, knocking Cause I Love You by Slade off number one in mid-December and holding on to become the Christmas number one of 1971, keeping Jeepster by T-Rex at bay. And here, once more, is the promo video, which was reshot when it became a hit, as the original was filmed in black and white. And yes, if you're old enough to be listening to chart music, you probably know this video shot for shot. Like many of the uh, videos that were on the Benny Hill show over the 70s and beyond, Mm -hmm. but not for those reasons. (laughs) Benny Hill, did you get on with him? I mean, he was always there. He was
0: always there.
1: I mean, as a child...
0: I found him hilarious, I've got to say. Right. Um, you know, which might seem odd. I mean, it is annoying to me that this record keeps Jeepster off the top of the charts. Mm. Uh, this record that I've always considered the pervy cousin to Scott Walker's Jackie in a weird way there's a lot of similarities there and also lest we forget this is also a record that David Cameron chose as one of his Desert Island Discs um you know at precisely the time actually David Cameron was making a big fuss about violent lyrics in rap music Mm. so I remember people questioning whether it was strictly appropriate for him to be endorsing a song about men fighting to the death for sex but um as a child I did find yeah I did find Benny Hill hilarious I mean it's kind of revealing to me thinking about myself that i also found kenny everett hilarious in that there are similarities in that obsession with control and editing and absencing yourself from anything live and risky Mm. which i think is what benny hill was all about you know turning the editing suite into this kind of comedic tool when you read about Benny Hill's early years coming up and auditioning at places like the Wimbledon stuff, what is a persistent theme is how he always pretty much died on stage, yeah. especially when he toured with Reg he um, He's not naturally funny. He's quite a shy individual. He went down particularly badly in northern clubs. And it's also revealing that what does excite him post World War II and what becomes a niche for him is television. Yeah. Much as with Everett, when you haven't really got a natural rapport with people, um, and that isn't an option, the kind of conspiratorial close-ups and glances that TV can give you—that's a neat substitute, if you like, for actual, you know, being able to, in, you know, being able to connect with an audience. Yeah. He always struggled with a live audience. For me, as a kid. I always thought he was a very, very funny man. Clearly one of those funny men who was only funny on screen and went in control and, and hopeless in a lot of other aspects of his life because mm. there didn't seem to be a natural humour to Benny. He was never going to be performing this song live on Top of the Pops like, you know, no. like Waterman and Cole would <laughs> two of their comedy record a decade later. But as I got older, I have to admit, I started feeling more uncomfortable with his comedy and... and the sexism I mean even before I knew the word sexism there was something wrong about this old fella chasing young girls around a park Mm. or about you know therapist starting to be read as the rapist this was all starting to look wrong in the 80s in a big way so of course I fell out of love uh, in that period Mm. this record it's it's often held up as a kind of a really a sort of good example of a true comedy record. It's a very precise record. Mm. I suppose we should applaud the finesse. I, it's not a precursor of rap, I want to nip that in the bud. What? <laughs> um, well, no, I mean it's spoken word, isn't it?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's in the lineage I would say of of Stanley Holloway and things like that, yeah. but it does show up the usual things about British people and sexuality. When I when I, when we did the episode um, about Kenny Everett oddly, and I was on Mixcloud finding old Kenny Everett radio shows, I also found a Noel Edmonds Radio One show mm. during Ernie's stint at number one in January seventy two. Right. And as usual, it's a good time capsule, you know, um, and and it shows that Noel was playing on a kind of Kenny Everett light theme if you like but what's interesting is he plays uh, i remember he played jeep's the first noel Edmonds in the show yeah and you know the bit in jeep's that i'm gonna suck you yes that line he plays a donald duck noise over that covering it up
1: well that makes it sound like he's saying i want to fuck you
0: <laughs> he just obscures it completely with this weird Jesus. donald duck noise and then two records later he plays theme from shaft mm-hmm. and you know obviously he's a bad mother the mother goes missing it's just he's a bad but this record, of course, just gets played completely fine. Because yeah. it's harmless, I guess. Um, this record, it doesn't matter whether I like it or don't like it. It's in there, as you say. Mm. It's in my head. Yeah. This video's a bit of fun. In terms of throwing comestibles at each other, I would argue the goodies did it better with the uh, bun fight at the OKT OK room. Yes. Um, later on in the decade. It is sad what happens to Benny, I think. Yeah. Regardless of what you think of his comedy, his treatment by the industry, I think was pretty fucking appalling Yeah, um, towards the end of his career. So I was tremendously fond of him as a kid. And I'm not even going to say an innocent kid. You know, I I, I think his comedy got worse, and it didn't progress in any way. Mm. And, you know, I'm not saying his comedy should have reflected the sexual politics of his day, but I actually think the sexual politics of his comedy got worse and worse and worse. And and, and in a way, it started getting a tad misogynistic, almost, towards the end, rather Mm. than it just being kind of innocent fun. So, yeah, I'm not a massive fan of this record, of course, but it's in there. It's part of my cultural lineage. It's in most British people's Head. And this video, frame for frame, yeah, you remember every single moment on yeah. it.
3: Yeah, when I was a kid, this used to be on junior choice every yes. single week. Yeah. And yeah. I used to find it quite upsetting and scary. Yeah. Because he died and then became yeah. a ghost. And yeah. I'm pretty sure that one morning I ran off and hid in another room. Aww. And when my mum found me, I was sniffling a bit Aww. and she said, What's wrong? And I said I'm thinking about old Ernie, <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> which you know is not really bad skit, as oh. I was only five. But I did immediately start building myself a huge emotional wall, <laughs> um, so it would never happen again. Which I finally completed about five years ago, and now nothing nice. gets through it in either direction unless <laughs> it comes through the cat flap. Um, but of course, I didn't realise at the time this is actually a kind of parody of those old records like Johnny Remember Me yeah. and mm. Ghost Riders in the Sky, you know, the mm, old yeah. death discs. And yeah. perhaps, perhaps not to be taken
0: 100% seriously. <laughs> Did any other records upset you like that? Death records. Because um... I reckon I've got a faint memory of Lily the Pink doing that to me. Really? Yeah, later on, much later on, I think. Mm. Um Obviously, later than it came out, I wasn't even born when it came out. No. But yeah, they can hit you hard when you're a kid, records in which the main protagonist dies.
1: As we've all pointed out, David believed that Terry Jacks was actually dying when he did Seasons in the Sun, so
3: yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he thought it was like uh, Hurt by Johnny
1: Cash. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The only song that's ever hit me in that way was Old Shep by Elvis Mm. not because it affected me but because it affected me dad we'd be in a car and he had an Elvis tape Mm. and I would know the track listing back to front and I'd be counting down going oh fucking hell in about three songs time old Shep's coming on and if there's a traffic jam or anything my dad's going to be roaring in the car about Elvis's dead dog (laughs) and I'm going to sit there next to me weeping dad please please all the traffic lights stay on green (laughs) Oh, bless.
3: I mean, I don't like this record very much, but I would say it's a superior novelty record. Um, and of all the songs written to make people who aren't bothered about pop music laugh, this would be comfortably in the top half of that mm. table, you know. And as Benny Hill pop music parodies go, it's not quite as <laughs> funny as his, as his spoof of Supersonic with Mike Mansfield. Yes. Uh, which is not that funny in itself, although it did is give him a super chance chronic? to... Uh, can't remember. I just remember it gave him a chance to do his peerless Roy Orbison impression again, albeit somewhat out of time. (laughs) Um, uh, But, I mean, this is funnier than those goodies records without the distraction of desperately wanting to be serious, you know. Mm. And, of course, the video's got Henry McGee in Mm. it, who just has funny pouring off him at all times. Yes. um, Even when he's not trying to be
1: funny. (laughs) Alas, no Bob Todd. No, Um, or Jackie What's-His-Name.
3: Yeah, yeah. But it's not stutter rap or, (laughs) you know, shut that door by Larry Grayson or something, you know. Or Les Dawson's version of uh, I Can't Control Myself by the Trogs done as (laughs) comedy sex pest Cosmo Small Oh, I like that, though. Yeah, well, I mean, I've heard worse, but (laughs) this is better. This sounds like it took longer than an afternoon. But he was a weird... He did actually work as a milkman for a while. Yes, he did. Which presumably is where he got the inspiration for this. I don't think it's a true story, but mm-hmm. he had a sort of unspectacular, but quite an interesting life. Like, you know, he grew up in a condom shop. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was actually... It was a like a surgical appliances shop and sort of medical bits. But really what kept it afloat was young men buying condoms. Right? Mm. But it was like one of those... Those old things where you have to engage in this ludicrous pretense, Mm. you know, that like, oh, no, this isn't a condom shop. We don't just flog John, is it? But they did. (laughs) That's what it really was. Um, And it's possibly not too simplistic to speculate that might have had some effect on his aesthetic and his later work. Um, You know, or at least as much as the fact that his dad was a bit of a cunt and he got on really well with his mum and all that sort of stuff that biographers Mm. love, you know. Uh, but people always assume that formative experiences are, are, are the obvious things, and I'm not so sure. You know. yeah. I mean, there's two things that people always talk about with Benny Hill: the person. First of all, he was obsessively frugal. Mm. Like, he made millions out of the overseas sales oh, of his yeah. show, it was big in America
1: and stuff. Yes, that, that but, does my head in, that does. Yeah. I've read so many biographies by members of the Bloods and Crips and they all bang on about how much they fucking love Benny Hill. There's one where <laughs> someone says, "Oh yeah, I went, I went into the other territory on on a bike, and I got me shotgun, and I fucking killed four people. Cycled back with you know bullets flying over my head." Got home, went up to the bedroom, laid the shotgun under the bed, just in time for the Benny Hill show. <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. I remember when uh, Snoop Doggy Dog, as he then was, was on the cover of Melody Maker. He said in the interview that he loved Benny Hill. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, he was—he had millions in the bank from this, yeah. but he lived in a crap flat round the corner from Thames Television studios.
1: Yeah, Teddington Lock, Middlesex, and he would
3: go down to the docks with a big bag, and buy cans that had got wet and the labels had come off. Yeah. So you didn't know what was in them, which they used to flog off cheap in bulk. And Benny would be there with a bag and <laughs> seven million in the bank. And, <laughs> you know, there he was, a surprise every mealtime. Like, yeah. Uh, London grill with peaches.
1: Which he'd exchange for sexual favours from factory girls, wouldn't he? Uh, it's been said,
3: you know. Yeah. What, what about this, uh, give me a blowjob? And there's plum tomatoes and kitty cat. Oh, no, no, but he, and he never bought anything, or he used to get all his stuff from like just doing like openings of shops and stuff. Mm. And in mm. payment, he would take like a three piece suite or something. <laughs> really weird. The only things he ever spent money on were foreign holidays and the ladies, mm. um, which is the other thing because he lived on his own and he stayed a bachelor, and he was so. Excessively demonstrative about his interest in women, Mm. people assume that he must be gay, which he wasn't. He was just a randy old man Mm. who didn't want to get married because he liked staying in on his own and watching the telly. Yeah,
1: because that never happens when you're married, does it? (laughs) But
3: but specifically watching what he wanted to watch Ah. on the telly. So he'd take these women out for a posh lunch and a couple of drinks, bring them home. Uh, get a blowjob, apparently not interested in what the news of the world would call full sex, Mm. Um, and then he'd get him a taxi home. So he could sit there on his own, eating biscuits and watching Coronation Street, which (laughs) you could argue displays a certain emotional immaturity, Mm. Mm. or you could argue that it displays an admirably stubborn resistance to doing what he didn't want to do Mm. on the reasonable grounds that there was no actual reason to do it. Yeah. You know, as if there aren't enough divorces in the
1: world. You Mm. know what I mean? Didn't work with Hazel O'Connor, though, did it? Got to kick up his ass for his troubles. If
0: you're insanely wealthy... I'm guessing, like, that kind of weird hermetic frugality is just more interesting mm. than the mansion life, as it were. I heard that, and um, I know this is all going to be a lot of I heards, but um, <laughs> with regards to his sexual peccadilloes, it is, yes, yeah, so frequently suggested that he was gay. I mean, what I've heard is, yeah, he didn't like full sex, as it were. It was all blowjobs. And he liked the uh, person administering the blowjob, is that the correct phrase, um, to call him Mr. Hill. Um, because <laughs> it showed respect. But, um, oh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's twisted in a way itself. People want to seek the twisted in Benny Hill. I just think mm. he was yeah, a very quiet, private individual who mm. I think was mainly obsessed with comedy. Mm.
3: Yeah. Oh, the story that Bob Monkhouse always used to tell was that apparently Benny Hill's hobby, he'd go round to the houses of his middle-aged female friends mm and do their cleaning for them. <laughs> yeah. he'd clean their, like, this he was not in return for sex or anything. Yeah. This would be people he wasn't sleeping with. He'd go around and he'd clean their kitchen. And Bob Munkhouse said that in a business full of eccentrics, this was probably the strangest thing he'd ever heard yeah. any comedian do. Mm. Yeah. But it's you know what he was saying about America? Americans don't think of him in the same bracket as other broad mainstream comedians. This is the weird thing. They think of him in the same bracket as Monty Python. Yeah. Which is ridiculous, (laughs) but Mm. quite interesting. I think it's because they used to show them both on a loop on American TV. Right. And they Mm. were both British and sort of naughty with tits in at Mm. a time when American TV was a bit more sort of uptight about that sort of thing. So to all all those people, they were just essentially the same. Like, you know, when yeah. you go on a podcast app and you see chart music and underneath it says similar podcasts you, yeah. you might enjoy and it's always like word in your ear, you know. It's like, mm. oh, yeah, it's just the same. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: But in a weird but- way, Taylor, there is a similarity, isn't there? Because the, the, the pythons masters of the edit and masters of the editing suite and, and right. it's not just a case of spe- speeding up stuff to make it funny it's cutting it funny mm. and I, I think there is that similarity there isn't there a little bit so maybe that's why americans perceive them similarly as well yeah, yeah well
3: when when you look at his early tv work it was really different from early the, from <laughs> what we grew up with like it, it was really invented yeah and yeah like you say it was all about that sort of like technical wizardry you split screens and, and stuff yeah yeah, yeah, just trying to do stuff that you could do on telly that you couldn't do on a stage and all that sort of mm. thing. And, I mean, that's where he built his reputation, and that stuff really is good. I think what we got um, in the late 70s and 80s was, uh, I don't know, it was, he'd reached that point where he didn't really have to work because he knew that yeah. if he slapped the little fellow on the head yeah, and yeah. he looked up a young woman's skirt and then looked at the camera and did a face... People would just fucking scream with laughter, you know. Yeah. So it's all that stuff's all just the same joke.
1: It was comfort-letching, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, you know, to my mind, by the late 70s, the Benny Hill show was right. Okay, you've got to sit through a load of very samey sketches, mm. uh, to, to see some woman in stockings and suspenders. Yeah, that's what you were yeah. waiting for. Yeah. yeah.
3: Although Americans thinking he's like Monty Python is is probably more defensible than the French who think he's a fucking chaplain-esque <laughs> physical comedy genius. I mean, he's good, but he's not that fucking good. I went on a French no. exchange when I was a, at school and the mum of the house where I was staying tried to think of something English that she liked to start a conversation with me, right? Mm. Rather than talking about the French things that she liked, like Jean-Marie Le Pen, and uh, <laughs> I remember her coming up to me and saying, J'adore Bénil, which was not the sort of thing my 13-year-old self expected to hear a French woman say. No. But, you know, such were the insights granted to us by the EEC, right? Yes. But I think British audiences do understand him best in the same way that no one really gets Bruce Springsteen like a Randy Carmichael from New Jersey, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but I think there's still a few misconceptions about the nature of what he did in Britain yeah. amongst British people, you know. Like, and the, you're right, the, the way that he was treated, the way he was drummed off the screen was a little bit yeah. slimy. And it's not that his time wasn't just about up you know. And if you've seen any of his shows from the late 80s it certainly was because they're mm. fucking awful. Mm. And it's not that it was unreasonable to say look I understand that you're still very popular but for various reasons we don't really want to do any more prime time family light entertainment hours where the only women in it are models in bikinis getting mm. goosed by 60 year old men, you know. <laughs> and and Bella Emberg is the the patron saint of unattractiveness, you know. Mm. Uh, yeah. And it's not, I mean, his late 80s stuff, his only innovation was to bring in Hill's little angels who oh were God. children in, oh the, in the tradition oh of the God. little rascals, not in the tradition of the mini-pops, I hate yeah, yeah, to no. add. Yeah. Uh, but it's still revolting because yeah. children just are yeah. in any
1: kind of comedy show, you know. But He made a £100 million pounds for Thames TV yeah. by the time he'd finished. Yeah. Fucking hell. <laughs>
0: it's just easy to forget he was an innovator, and yet he's the first TV comic to actually love the medium of TV Mm. and not see TV as this thing that you do in addition to the live circuit. Yeah,
1: That that eats up all your material.
0: Yeah. He's the first person to truly use the form. I mean, I wondered the only question I really have about this record. It's not a deep question. Is it the ladybird singing on it? I believe it is. Right. Got you. Makes sense. Yeah. Of course it is.
1: Who would spend a lot of time on top of the pops in the seventies where they're mates, the top of the pops orchestra. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I
3: just hated that weird because i remember it when he got the axe and comedians who weren't fit to kiss his enormous ass were throwing street Mm. parties you know what i mean people used to talk about it there was this weird celebratory thing like self-congratulation as though he was a bad person rather than an Mm. old person you know what i mean and it's like people have very simplistic ideas about comedy and what is or isn't offensive, right? And it's one of those things that everyone thinks they understand, even when they Mm. do. You know, I'm always moaning that anyone who can kind of spell and put words in an order that it makes sense thinks that they're a fucking writer, right? And it's not the same thing. It's the same with comedy. Because everyone watches stuff and laughs at it, people think that means they know what comedy is or that they understand how comedy works. And most Mm. of them don't, right? And you really see that when people start talking about what comedy is isn't isn't acceptable or offensive, right? Of course there are jokes which aren't okay and of course there are jokes mm. which reveal the people who tell them to be unpleasant people. But mm. a lot of the time people are trying to plot this on two axes, you know, and it isn't that simple. There's no, no. formula for this. The context and effect of humour are far more important than the topics, right? Or even the, the plain on paper meaning of a joke. Right, So there's so-called edgy comedy that really does perpetuate unpleasant ideas because mm. what it's effectively doing is nudging you in the ribs and saying, hey, mm. hey, shouldn't say it, but it's true, isn't it? Hey, hey, aren't mm-hmm. I daring to say this? And then there's other superficially far more appalling comedy that's actually perfectly valid because it isn't doing that. What it's doing is mm. dragging you down to its own reprehensible level, and then asking you whether you recognise yourself, which is totally different. That's something that comedy has to be allowed to do. But a lot of people don't understand any of this. So you end up with a load of people who think that, like, smug trash, like Ricky Gervais, is hilarious but Benny Hill is somehow offensive because he did tit jokes, like as if fucking Spike Milligan didn't do exactly the same tit jokes for his whole career, you know. Mm. Like he was some sort of crusading misogynist rather Mm. than just an old-fashioned musical comic, you know. And there's stuff in Benny Hill's shows that certainly should be euthanized. When you watch it, there's a few... Jovial rape gags, which aren't very mm. nice, and there's a mm. fair bit of racism from time yep. to time. Um, yeah. we all remember his hilarious Chinaman character, for instance. Yes. It's not, it doesn't look nice now, but people assume that because if you did those jokes now, they would be obviously mean spirited and awful, therefore that's what Benny Hill was, which he wasn't. And that's not mm. just temporal relativism, because there's a lot of old comedy that really is quite horrible and just Mm. means exactly what it seems to say, you know, nudging the ribs. Mm -mm. But when you look at Benny Hill doing endless tit jokes, it's not a celebration of male supremacy. It's about men being led by their dicks and making themselves foolish and being rewarded with a slap in the face every Mm. time. It's just that if you stage jokes like that within a culture... That is still extremely sexist. They might come out looking extremely sexist, especially to later generations, as hmm. if he's laughing at the existence of tits or something like that. <laughs> but in fact, he's laughing at the effect of tits on male dignity and self-possession. And a lot of people just don't get it. Yeah,
0: I don't get any mean-spiritedness from Benny. That's the thing, and and that that's what's unmistakable sort of in comedy, isn't it? You can straight away spot when somebody is kicking down. Yeah. And I don't think he ever was, really. What I think his problem was, was he was stuck. He couldn't develop his act. And it had been going that long that he just had to keep telling these same old appalling jokes, Mm. some of which inevitably started looking... Very ropey and quite offensive. Yeah. But I don't think, you know, he was, I don't think he was a racist or a sexist. Now I, I resent this kind of idea that we can, you know, apportion that to somebody in that way as if it's some massive reveal of their character. Yeah. Mm. Um, I don't think it is in the case of Benny Hill. And this isn't the only reason that I think there was generosity of spirit in his work, but his, his demise is truly sad. And, and it, it, you know, the fact that he, he wasn't found for two days and, and this yeah. sort of stuff and the fact that the son, you know the son quoted him as paying tribute to Frankie Howard who died
1: yeah fucking hell forgot about that
0: yeah they quoted him you know from beyond the grave i suppose because he had already been, he had already died the day that you know yeah. that two days before Frankie Howard died mm. yeah he was treated really really badly and and I, I wonder what could have happened i think by the time that he's in his sort of zenith of his fame nobody's going to come along and suggest he changes his act no which he couldn't do. So he is stuck there, you know. Um, But I I think the way that he departed from TV, the way he was kicked out, was brutal and cruel for somebody who had given a lot to British TV comedy Mm. uh, in a big way. And for so many of us, I've got to say, as a kid, I fucking found him hilarious.
3: Mm. Yeah. No, it's true. It's like, it's not that the jokes he was doing at the end weren't completely inappropriate, but yeah, they were completely inappropriate for the 80s and would have become... I was going to say, would have become even more appropriate in the 90s, something of a comeback of that sort of humour in the 90s. Mm, You know what I mean? It was like he just stayed the same and everything changed around him. And the problem with a lot of modern people is they can't see past themselves and they don't understand how to take something in and uh, evaluate and assess it. And they can't look at anything from the past and not to judge it by their own current standards. Yeah. And, and pass judgment and think that must be what it is. I no.
0: mean, I, I remember, uh, when Peter Powell was doing the Tuesday Tea Time Top 40 Roundup, and mm. in, this is in the 80s, and nearly all the new entries were novelty records. Yeah. They were like the Torval and Dean music, and it was Fraggle Rock, and Alexis Sale, and Mel Brooks, <laughs> and all of these novelty records. And I remember, Peter Powell getting really irate about this and saying there should be a separate chart for those sorts of records because, you know, there are proper bands out there trying to earn a living and these people are, you know, um, (laughs) stopping them. But, you know, I think Ernie's a good example. I love Jeepster, of course. That Mm -hmm. I want that to be number one. But at the same time, I think comedy records, they add to the strange magic of the British charts. and, And these sort of weird happenings where, you know, you end up with, I don't know, the Sex Pistols in between Kenny Rogers and the Muppets. <laughs> you know, I think those moments are good. Yeah, The charts are always a democratic leveller in a way. So, so I, I don't resent this record being number one. Mm. I do kind of resent it appearing at the end of 72 when it was, yeah. you know, it was an overhang from the previous year. But.
1: So Ernie would stay at number one for four weeks, eventually sent off to that milk round in the sky by I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing by the New Seekers. The follow-up thud-eyed fowl failed to chart, and he never troubled the charts again until a re-release of Ernie in the wake of his death got to number 29 for two weeks in May of 1995. And as Nils pointed out, in 2006, the song rose from the grave when David Cameron selected it as a Desert Island disc alongside mm. Fake Plastic Trees by Radiohead, Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd, and This Charming Man by The Smiths. Culture. At the same time, however, it was revealed that Hill used to donate money to the Communist Party of Australia to pay for their <laughs> annual barbecue as his sister was a member.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant.
1: Did Henry McGee pop up and say, like Johnny Marr did, that no, David Cameron, you can't like Benny Hill? Benny!
4: And he, and he drove the fastest car in the way. West!
2: the former wise that was Benny Hill. <laughs> <game. Got the laughs> this is Chicory Tipman, and Son of My Father.
1: Edmonds and Blackburn finally reunited, share a microphone as assorted kids, including one in a silver topper and Slade T-shirt, cluster about them. Here we are once again, the poor man's Morkham and Wise, says Tony. But before he can finish what he had to say about Benny Hill, Edmund snatches the mic away, (laughs) introduces the next act and starts frogging away, deliberately avoiding the gormless, confused smile of his (laughs) co-host. That
0: was awkward. Very awkward. And you can't help feeling deliberate on Noel's part.
3: But although he's sort of rushed into it, it does mean that Noel delivers his best ever Top of the Pops intro. It's the cleverest thing he ever said on Top of the Pops he says this is chicory tip and son of my father perfect perfect (laughs) more of that please
1: (laughs) formed in maidstone in 1963 the sonics were a beat combo who played the medway circuit to little success splitting up in 1965 Two years later, however, they reformed, taking their name from a jar of camp coffee, and after they linked up with Roger Easterbear, the manager of Vanity Fair, they were signed up to CBS in 1970. Their first three singles failed to chart, and they had just released their fourth, entitled I Love Onions, in November of 1971, but then Easterby chanced upon an advanced copy of a single put out in West Germany by Giorgio Moroder called I'm Free Now played the B-side, an English-language version of the 1971 hit Naxchent Dishonor, which he wrote for Michael Holm, and was convinced it was going to be a massive hit over here and wanted to be first in. Complying with the arcane rules of the UK music biz of the time, which dictated that you couldn't cover someone else's song until it had been played on the radio, he pulled a few strings with BBC Radio Kent and got it played once, (laughs) and then set to work on making it the hit that Chicory Tip were gagging for. After transcribing the lyrics by ear as not to alert Hansa, Giorgio's label, to the sting, and booking air studios for a session on Christmas Eve 1971, getting in Chris Thomas, George Martin's right-hand man throughout the late 60s, to programme a moog in an attempt to recreate Marauder's synthy thwack, CBS pulled the promotion for I Love Onions, which was shit anyway, (laughs) and rushed this out in the second week of January. It entered the chart at number 30 at the end of the month, then soared 19 places to number 11, then boinged all the way up to number 2. And a week later deposed Telegram Sam by T-Rex as the undisputed king of Pop Mountain. And here's another chance to see their original performance 10 months ago. And here, chaps, are those unkempt youths that the reviewer from the Coventry Evening Telegraph was going on about. (laughs) (laughs) And where do we start with this? I mean, fucking hell, what a palaver. Yeah. Poor Giorgio, man. Had it snatched under his yeah. mustachioed nose. It's it's
0: such a strange rule. I didn't know that, Al, about that you can't cover anything unless it's been played on the radio.
1: Yeah, apparently so. Well, that's what it said on their website. That's mental. The Chicory Tip website.
3: Yeah, it, what's <laughs> weird about this is lyrically, it's such a strangely specific and left-field topic a record Mm. that is unashamedly just a vehicle for the sound of the Moog synthesizer. Unfortunately Mm. one of those words where you sound more like a dick if you say it correctly. Um, (laughs) I know I I was told (laughs) there. Yeah. I'm going No,
1: I'm going back to Moog. Fuck it. (laughs) Yeah. But
3: it's with the oddness of the words is probably just an artifact of this song's rather convoluted gestation. But I can't think of another period in pop history where anyone charged with writing English lyrics to a space-age mm. bubblegum tune showcasing a, a crazy new sound would not have just made it go, Oh, I love my baby. Uh, she's mm. lovely and she's lovely yeah. and I love her. So, you know, rather than yeah. thinking, all right, I'm, I'm going to make this one about the stifling pressures of familial expectation. Uh, but it needs to be said, man. You know like, you know that song? My old man said, be an Arsenal fan. I said, fuck yes. off, bollocks, you're a cunt. Like that, sort of like that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you, don't, yeah. you know... My
1: dad's a bastard. <laughs> bastard, 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 <laughs> dad. They might as well go. have made
3: it about... Yeah, the superiority of drawstring bin bags or something. It's like, yeah. But
0: but the thing is with the lyrics. I mean, you know, trying to find the lyrics to this, in a sense, it reminded me of how antagonised I get when you when you do Google lyrics because I thought I knew what the lyrics to this was. Yeah, and I'm sticking with mine. I'm sorry, regardless of what Google says. As far as I'm concerned, he sings. Moolin, I was fooling, I was free from drive. <laughs> I also think he sings Commanded, I was stranded in a plastic crime. And I also think he sings mm. Surrounded and confounded by statistic vibes. They're very, mm. very strange lyrics. I'm sticking with those. I mean, the, yeah. the actual official ones are no less strange, to be honest with you. But, yeah, but I you think, can't trust them, can you? No, you can't. For those
1: lyric sides.
0: And also Moolin, it's just a fantastic word. I don't know what it means, mm. but um, I'm sticking with that.
3: Cross Channel fairy.
0: I put down a board in and I went to Boulogne. That would have been good. <laughs> the thing is, I think this is much better than the... Ori- it's a great single, this. And I think it's much better than the original Michael Holmes single that you've mentioned. By the way, don't... Fall down the alluring rabbit hole of the B-side to the original German single that's called Smog in Frankfurt. Um, that is such a great title, yeah. isn't it? you have to yes. listen, but but it's not worth it, honestly. But oh. here on on the, on the chicory tip version uh, of this song, you know the Moog is, and I'm going to say moog as well. Um, it's it's accentuated. I find in the original German thing, it's a sort of peripheral detail, the use of the the synth. But in this, mm. I think it just is way more accentuated. It actually is the low end of this record, is is all yeah. Moog. And it becomes a big part of the mix, yeah. um, which oddly enough mirrors what happens with the other Chicory Tip single that year, What's Your Name, which, you know, just like Son of My Father is a marauda composition and production. And just like Son of My Father, there's a version in German first, which is a... Uh, Woe well, Bis Du, I think, by Peter Maffett. That similarly keeps the synth sounding polite, if you like. Whereas yeah. with Chicory Tip, they're front and centre and they form yeah. the low end. You know, what's startling is how sparse the record is, really. It, it's yeah. basically based around that.
1: And what a mind blast it must have been hearing this for the first time. Oh, without a doubt. Being used in a pop single. Totally. Baxter, Woolard and Rod would have been well pissed off. (laughs) Their show's gone for hours and hours and hours because before they play the fucking song, they tell you what the synthesizer is and what it does and how it's made. (laughs) Just get a fucking half hour lecture.
3: This should be available in English shops by about the year 1982. (laughs) Manufacturers estimate a price of about (laughs) £17,000.
0: The thing is, it is is important. What you can't really see here is the future, in a sense. We do have to wait for craft work for that, I would say. But what you don't see here is synths just used as kind of gimmickry. You know, although the guitarist is up there pretending to have been on the record, fundamentally what you have here is a long-haired, rock-like frontman
1: Happy Oh, to... and what hair? Yo, God, what, what hair? What a fucking booth on he's got on <laughs> it. He's got marvellous hair. Marvellous and tough, last hair. He looks like he's got two wigs on his head. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he looks like a rock front man, but he's happy to sing on something purely synthetic. So, mm. you know, it's very philoky in that regard. And th- crucially, <laughs> th- there's a real joy in this sound. It reminds me of when I, it, whenever I let my grandkids play on my keyboards and stuff at first their impulse obviously isn't musical it's just simply how can I make this sound like the future how can I make this make robot noises or make weird futuristic noises and I think part of that sort of delight in that novelty of synth noises is really important and it comes across in, in in this single which is a fantastic single
1: definitely the earliest if not the earliest pop singles to embrace the synth Uh, certainly the first number one single with a moog on it and uh, as you can imagine quite a big deal was made of it at the time Uh, there's an article in the sunday mirror from this february entitled chicory click with a robot line in music (laughs) the age of electronic music is really with us chicory tip A group from Maidstone would probably still be comparative unknowns if it hadn't been for electronics engineer Chris Thomas. (laughs) They went to record their adaptation of a continental song called Son of My Father and Chris, who was officiating in the control box, connected up a piece of electronic wizardry called a Moog synthesizer. The result was magic. Chris got £20 for the session, but he won't receive any royalties. Some people might be inclined to fly into a fury at the thought of chicory tip riding to fame on someone else's back. But lead singer Peter Hewson explains the Moog synthesizer is a complicated gadget which, when connected to a piano keyboard, provides an incredible number of sound effects. It takes two people to work it, a trained electronics engineer and a pianist. The big snag now is that we've had to buy a £1,000 Moog outfit and engage a full-time expert, but it helps the hard rock sound that kids want. (laughs) (laughs) They are fed up with obscure underground noises with no definite beat. Now they demand excitement, something they can understand again. Yeah man, testify. He's right. Yeah. He's
0: absolutely
3: right. It's just a bit of an issue that despite what we're hearing, we have to look at them there miming with guitars, which mm. does look ridiculous. And it was only when I looked into this that I found out Chicory Tip didn't even have a keyboard player no. when this <laughs> record was made. Um, And the bloke playing on this clip, I think, is just sitting in. Right. It's like if there hadn't been any horn players in the the Brighouse and (laughs) Dance band. They'd have to go on top of the pops and they'd mime to the floral dance, like, loping about with zithers. It's it's all a cod, man. But what I do like is that there's a drummer on the record. Yeah. And a drummer here. Because all of these, well, most of these early groups that used electronics had human drummers because development of drum machines sort of came later than the development of early Sense. So mm-hmm. if you listen to, like, the Silver Apples mm. or, or United States of America, you know, like, right up to Tubeway Army, mm. you still have this strange situation where, like, most of the band were living in the year 1999 Ooh. when all you have to do is you press a button that says music on it yeah. and the whole <laughs> song comes out by itself. But then the drummer is still sat there, like, surrounded by the cumbersome relics of the acoustic age. Mm. You know? But the combination always sounds brilliant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the drums here are absolutely crucial. When he starts rippling about and breaking up the beat and the flow, it's just sensational and really, really deeply pleasurable.
1: Yeah. yeah. It doesn't help that Peter Hewson is a very unsure frontman. I think he, he, he he's performing this as if he's worried that the robots are actually going to take over. <laughs> And a Cyberman's just going to push him off the microphone and take over. <laughs> he's not quite sure when to do the clappy bits. And he's doing this stupid lumbering step in front of the mic stand. You know the end credits of Dad's Army, where yeah. they're all marching across the field with their <laughs> rifles? Godfrey. <laughs> That's what he looks like. Chicory Tip are essentially a lab band who've just been given this amazingly futuristic song. It's like, I don't know, giving Firestarter to Dodgy or something like that, isn't it?
0: It really is. It's just,
1: look, right, that song about the onions, forget it, it's shit, you're doing this. Just do this. Just stand here and do this. You'll have a hit. But if glam was establishing itself as a buzzword of the era, there's another word that's already been established in 1972 Aggro. Um, (laughs) One of the pleasures I've had of researching this year is seeing the two words sparking off each other from time to time as the idea of football hooliganism really took hold in the media. So I present to you this article from the Sunday people in October of 1972 entitled When Those Gold and Silver Boots Go In. (laughs) Roy Ahmed has a bizarre gimmick which distinguishes him as one of the hooligans on Sheffield Wednesday's terraces. He wears, of all things, silver bother boots sprayed by himself with aerosol paint. They're to show I'm one of the leaders, he boasted. They also distinguish him and his imitators with silver boots from a group of rival fans who follow Sheffield's other team, United, They wear boots sprayed with gold paint. Insignificant louts with a desperate urge to be noticed. (laughs) One of the golden boot boys told our investigators, we have a reputation as a hard crowd and I want it to stay that way. I'm trying to get more people to fight. (laughs) And, you know, it's not hard to imagine Roy Ahmed and his chums and the Golden Boot Boys stamping a a, a metallic boot on the dance floor to this single, which, as we (laughs) all know, very quickly became a terrace anthem. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Pardon my ignorance, but I'm feeling that 72 is the year where football and music does come together um, a, a lot more. Obviously, a couple of weeks after Son of My Father stops being number one. I think it's Man City fans who start using it, chanting about mm. Rodney Marsh. And, yeah. you know, it becomes the, the template for any number of different songs. And also, you know, don't forget, 72, I think, is also the spring in which the first club-based, as opposed to England-based football record, gets into the top 10 in the yeah. shape of, you know, Blue is the Colour. Uh, yeah. I think good old it's Arsenal... United as well. yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, of course. And good old Arsenal the year before only creeps into the top twenty, whereas Blue is the Colour gets to number five, I think. So, yeah, yeah. and that's—I mean, it's mad really because Blue is the Colour I think it was about the League League Cup final. It wasn't even an FA Cup song, but yeah, that—that—that's happening more and more, isn't it? That connection between football and music in this period. Yeah,
4: yeah.
3: See, I'm slightly intrigued by the fact that the whole band seem to be wearing Farrah slacks. I mean, smart and comfortable and even slightly fashionable at this time, but not really mm. the sort of trousers you associate with a, a, a sneak
0: preview of the 30th century. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Doesn't that happen to Chicory Tip later, that their record yeah, company so God, yes. and, yeah, and get them dressed up as futuristic Satanists? Or something. Yeah, there's, uh, there's loads <laughs> of
3: pictures of them on the internet dressed as, uh, yeah, like non-super non-heroes out of a, yeah. out <laughs> a Bulgarian sci-fi movie um it's <laughs> quite the sight to see but they all seem to be associated with a, a later flop single of theirs called IOU which is of no interest whatsoever and mm. there don't mm. seem to be any moving images at all of this uh, this bold new look i mean if they'd managed to time the cheapo futuristic image to coincide with the cheapo futuristic sound They would have Mm. been even more widely derided, but they Mm, might have been even more exciting as well. Although I would forgive these people anything for having put out a single called I Love Onions, a message that (laughs) I endorse wholeheartedly. Well, quite. Except when you actually listen to it, yeah, it's not good news. It does expose them as actually being in that tradition of Vanity Fair or the mixtures, you know like the only record Mm. that they'd ever heard was D.W. Washburn by the Monkees, you know. It's like old-timey, ingratiating rubbish, you know. It's all very arch and aggravating and basically just waiting for the the bright, clean synthesizer wind to blow through and purify them, you know. Also, any extra credit earned from one of their follow-up singles being called uh, Good Grief Christina, And the lyric going, good grief, Christina, how come you never heard of rock and roll? Um, Also melts away when you actually try and listen to it. And you realise that, yes, son of my father was to them what shooting archduke Franz Ferdinand was to Gavrilo Princip <laughs> is not hugely interested in his exploits in the All Serbia Intercounty Table Tennis Championship of 1912 <laughs> you know that was the backhand smash that wasn't heard around the world mm. uh, frankly that can go hang
0: I'm sorry to hear that yeah. I love onions isn't any good because that's a sentiment that needs stating I mean <laughs> yeah I mean imagine life without onions it would scarcely be worth living.
1: Oh, you're sounding like my mum now, Neil.
0: <laughs> well, the thing is, I mean, food does come into this because with a name like Chicory Tip, it's almost mm. as if they were retrospectively invented to be the ultimate 70s, sort of early 70s, because Chicory is a very 70s thing. I mean, Camp yes. Coffee, I was a right picky little sod when I was a little kid with food and drink, and I mm. would have Camp Coffee. Right. Yeah, every morning, mate. Cold. Um, I remember the bottle Jeez. with the with the guy with the bagpipes. Yes, yeah, that that sparks some memories. Certainly, if I had, uh, I don't need to talk you through my food preferences when I was a toddler. No, please but do. But no, no, that was, that, was just, uh, look, that was my breakfast. I'd have camp coffee and I'd have bacon, right? But. Annoyingly, man, I wouldn't just eat the same bacon that everyone else was having. My mum would have to do mine extra crispy and then break it into tiny finger sized little pieces for me to eat. That would. I was just a really fucking annoying little. Little picky kid, but Camp Coffee was a large, large
1: part of my childhood. It was my breakfast yeah. every morning, it's my breakfast drink. Bacon Fingers, they would have been a good support band for Chickweed. <laughs> but yeah, this song is a song that, that's in the past. It wasn't part of my life in 1972, mm. and I lump it in with Yellow River by Chris Day as one of those songs that you always heard when you're on holiday and you were in the um, Maid Marion Club or something, and some punch-like band would turn up, and they'd slog their way through this without the mook. <laughs> thing is,
3: really, to understand the importance of a synth sound, you have to clarify the differences between pop and music, right? And mm. the people who like one or the other. If you take two extremes, right, on the first hand, you have albums of course let's say the brown album by the band wish your ear by pink floyd moon dance by van morrison right and on the other hand you have singles yummy 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 by the ohio express uh, more 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 by andrea true connection and Oo stick you by daphne and celeste right now mm. to me those are all great records because i'm musically bisexual But there are a lot of people who love three of those records and hate the other three, Mm. or would Mm. do if they ever heard them. But the three that they love and the three that they hate are always from the same side of the selection. Mm. Um, Because the first three of those records have no pop value. And the second three have no musical value. And there's a lot of people who love pop, but are bored or worse by, you know, music. And there's a lot of people who who love music, but they're untouched or worse by pop. And generally speaking, the music people think the pop people are aesthetic simpletons with no mm. appreciation mm. of quality. Sheep, man. Yeah, and the and the pop people think the music people are dull and mentally lifeless, you know, with no Musos, wit man. or imagination. <laughs> yeah. But in fact, not to sound like Bobby Bridgebuilder here, They just connect to records in a different way and their imaginations are stimulated by different kinds of intensity, right? Because pop people, it's not that they have no musical appreciation at all because they understand that Crazy in Love is a better record than that, you know, the fast food rockers. Um, And it's not that music people have no appreciation of anything beyond technique because they love The Who, who were one of the most gimmicky and sensationalistic bands who ever lived, you know. But... The, one of the great battlegrounds of history between these two people is the synthesizer, because mm. heavy music people got into synth music of a type, whether it was like Stevie Wonder or Tonto's Expanding Headband. But yeah, or the, the Who. Right, and Or The Who. But the general attitude was you just press the button and it comes out and it's dystopian anti-music. And what yeah. they disliked and distrusted about the sound of the synthesizer, in fact, was its simplicity, was the simplicity of the sound because nothing that you can do in the act of playing an analogue synth has any bearing on the noise it makes. You can't bend a string, you can't Mm. scronk it, which to Mm. those people feels dehumanising. But it's also the simplicity of its appeal is a problem for them because for pop... The simpler and the more direct you can make the sound, the more exciting it is, right? And the more immediate it is. And what Giorgio Moroder realised first about the synthesiser and what everyone involved in this record then picked up on is that it simplifies the process of piping happiness into a random listener's ears and forcing them Mm. to respond. Because the point is music expects you to do half the work and is proud of that. Pop music has got no time for this. It has to attack you in the quickest way while you're out shopping or you're listening to the radio. Mm. So the clear, basic and piercing lines of the analogue synth, plus what was then the novelty of the sound, were perfect. And all that's left to do is write a song that's catchy enough to carry it without the song getting in the way of the thrill, which is a a satanic concept to like those (laughs) Eric Clapton fans (laughs) who don't understand that the reason Jimi Hendrix was a better guitarist than Eric Clapton wasn't just down to faster fingers or mm. more soul, man. It was that Hendrix also understood things like flash and gimmickry and yeah. showmanship yeah, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. all these pop qualities. You know, If you can operate on both sides of this dichotomy at once, you've won, right? But if you can't, yeah. just do this, write a nursery rhyme, find a gimmick, and, oh, look, guess what? You still need talent and vision and judgment after all, or you need to know somebody who's got those things.
0: Yeah, yeah. that certainly is part of the synth fear among musicians. I, th- I think... You know, in this period, there's a fear of kind of I don't know, music getting deprofessionalized. If you like the the yeah, thing yeah. that synthesizers introduce, that's, that is precisely why they're so exciting in pop is that they suggest this remarkable thing that non-musicians can start getting involved and that, that you know yeah. they can start being a part of this. And I think that's... I don't
1: think that's happening just yet. No, that happens in the eighties, doesn't it? Yeah, when they become more affordable.
0: But I do think, you know, Keith Emerson notwithstanding. There's a thing about synthesizers that does disincline that kind of virtuosity, if you like. It, it doesn't mm. foreground the virtuosic as being the most important aspect of being a musician. And I think that's a deep, deep worry for your musos, as Taylor mentioned.
3: Yeah, especially as I think the version of the Moog that they would use on this, I think would have been monophonic. So you couldn't right. even play a chord on it. Mm. <laughs> you just It was like a kid's organ. It just went... <laughs> you just play one note
1: at a time. But it's what the kids want now, though. Oh, yes. You can't blame <laughs> yeah. them, can you? I'll tell you what. Imagine if Chicory Tip had got old of uh, I Feel Love before <laughs> Giorgio had a chance to put it out properly. Fucking oh, out. he got gazumped. <laughs> So, Son of My Father spent three weeks at number one, eventually giving way to the next single we're going to hear. And after initially getting the arse about it, Giorgio patched up his differences with the band and became their chief songwriter for the next couple of years. The follow-up, What's Your Name, got to number 13 in June and their next single, Good Grief Christina, got to number 17 in May of 1973. But that would be the last spray of their musk upon the charts, despite, or possibly because of, a glam makeover which saw them wearing superhero costumes with their pants over their tights, huge orange bulbous helmets, and an eye mask shaped like a massive crab, and a single called Cigarettes, Women and Wine, which was banned by the BBC for encouraging the kids to get the fags in, as if they needed any encouragement (laughs) in the 1970s. (laughs) (laughs) They split up in 1975, but Peter Hewson was last spotted in 1983 when he recorded the single Take My Hand with Vince Clark while the latter was in between the Assembler and Erasure. Fucking hell, this man could have been the front person of Erasure. (laughs) Yeah, imagine him in some hot pants. I'd rather not.
3: What would have been funnier is if after this record they went to Man United and they won fuck all. Yes. <laughs>
2: Thank you very much, though, indeed, to uh, Chicory Tip. I'm the envy of all the fellas now, because I've got the lovely pans people all round me. Hello. I still haven't got my Christmas present from you. No, haven't you, got, you haven't got one. me anything? No, I've, got one. I've got you the most beautiful Christmas present. It's awesome. over there, right? Really? I bet you can't guess. I bet you can't guess yeah. what that is. It's, it cost me an absolute fortune, I did, to send that through the post. You just don't know what that is, do you? How about that? That's Cherry, and she is going to be the brand-new dancer with pans people. Well, there you go, that's uh, Cherry, and she's going to be dancing with Pans People all the way through 1973. Right, well, we're going to see Cherry right now dancing for the very, very first time with Pans People to one of the most beautiful songs of uh, 1972. It's called Without You from Nielsen.
1: We cut back to Tone, who tells us how he's the envy of all the fellas with an A on the end, due to his close proximity to four people of Pan. (laughs) He tells them that he's got them the most beautiful Christmas present and directs them towards a huge wadge of flowery paper tied up with pink ribbon. After some awkward faffing about, the package opens up to reveal Cherry Gillespie. Born somewhere in Norfolk in 1955, Cherry Gillespie trained as a ballerina at the Bush-Davies School of Theatre Arts at East Grinstead and was tipped as a major ballet artist in the making by the Daily Telegraph earlier this year when she played Swan Hilda in Coppelia. Meanwhile, Pan's people, who were entering their fifth year of emoting to records and being all crumpeter, were going through a period of transition. In February, Flick Colby stepped down from performance to concentrate on stick-banging. Then seven months later, Andy Rutherford took pregnant, reducing the line-up to four and causing the great crumpet shortage of late 1972. <laughs> An audition was called for a new fifth member, and Gillespie sailed through it. And this, her debut performance, is the birth of the Imperial Phase Pans People lineup. Oh, <laughs> this is landmark, chaps.
0: It is. Sherry
1: Gillespie, my second favourite person of Pan when I became top of the Pops aware. And she got promoted up to first when Louise Clark left. And she's clearly the bridge between the traditional Pan's people to the more live legs and co, isn't yeah. she? Yeah,
3: and apparently she cost Tony an absolute fortune. That's what mm. he says. That whole thing is a little bit creepy, isn't it? Yeah, just oh, a bit, yeah. 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 It would have been better if they'd opened the present And inside it were all of Pan's people's dogs dead. (laughs) And then cut to Tony laughing maniacally.
0: (laughs) Yeah, instead, what we get is when it cuts to Tony and he turns back to the camera, he does look like he's been caught having a wank on. He looks uh, really surreptitious and odd. I also really like the fact, the attention to detail with Top of the Pops at this time. You know, that gift tag on the wrapping paper, Mm. two pans people. Yeah. I really hope that gift tag, that enormous outsized gift tag is somewhere still you know, in the studio or in television are covered in cobwebs and fag ash. Mm. Um, I love getting lost in thinking of the rather mundane processes that must have been enacted to make those little add-ons real. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's a shame about the first routine she's given, really, isn't it? Oh,
1: God, Yeah. After this awkward bit is done with, Tony tells us that Cherry will be dancing with pants people all the way through 1973, which is a bit of a demand even on a trained dancer. And the new era starts right here, as they're going to have a bit of Emote too. Without You by Nielsen. Born in Brooklyn in 1941, Harry Nielsen relocated to California in his teens and eventually worked as a computer operator in a bank while forging a career as a singer-songwriter on the side. In 1962, he landed a job singing demos for the songwriter Scott Turner and a year later linked up with John Marascarlo, best known for co-writing some of Little Richard's biggest hits, who helped him begin a solo career. After a spell working with Phil Spector, he landed a deal with RCA in 1966 and a year later put out his first LP, Pandemonium Shadow Show. Although it didn't do anything commercially, it was seized upon by certain music biz types as the coming thing, one of whom was Derek Taylor, press officer of the Beatles, who brought home a box of the LP and started lobbing it out to folk, including the mob fabs. They were so taken by it that when Paul McCartney and John Lennon gave a press conference to launch Apple Corps in New York in 1968, Lennon claimed that Nielsen was his favourite American singer, and favourite American band. He finally broke through in the UK in 1969, when his cover of the Fred Neil single, Everybody's Talking, used in Midnight Cowboy, got to number 23 in October of that year. But despite establishing himself as an albums artist in the early 70s, hadn't been anywhere near the charts since. This single, a cover of a track featured on Badfinger's 1970 LP No Dice, was heard by Nielsen at a party in 1971, and after going through his Beatles LPs and discovering it wasn't one of theirs, recorded it for inclusion in his seventh LP, Nielsen Schmielsen. Put out as the lead-off single in America in October of 1971, it slowly clawed its way up the Billboard chart, spending four weeks at number one in February of 1972. Emboldened by the number one placing, RCA put it out over here in the same month, and a month later, it had dragged Son of My Father off number one. Hmm. Flick Colby said this was the worst ever Pans People performance. (laughs) chiefly because the costumes are too voluminous. But, you know, mainly they've been dealt a right shitty hand there, haven't they? They have. Just imagine what they could have done with some of the singles we've already heard and are about to hear. Too right. Could have been a hot panther frenzy.
0: (laughs) But but that said, I mean, I like the way that they're kind of dressed like Ingrid Pitt and Britt Eklund in the closing scene of The Wicker Man. But what they're being asked to do... Is is pretty horrendous, really? I mean, there's only one way to dance to this record, if you mm. if you're minded to dance to this record, and that's drunk with your partner, with your hands pouring each other in a really unpleasant way. Um, <laughs> that descends into a sort of unholy frot fest. Mm. I mean, in terms of coolness. If the coolest thing pan's people ever do, that little promo vid they did to John Barry's Persuaders yes. uh, theme, then then this routine is down there with yeah, Gilbert O'Sullivan's Get Down routine. It is Pan's People, probably my favourite dance troupe. So the things that we love about Pan's People, that slight sense of rushed rehearsal, those tiny imperfections that make them a a cherishably British phenomenon more than merely a version of an American trope, all of that's there, but I don't want to watch this routine ever again. No. You know what I mean? There's nothing in the routine that engages at all. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're dressed as inmates from a sexy asylum. um, (laughs) Yes.
1: Or like the ghosts
3: of 18th century children, bricked up in the cell
1: it's like when sally oldfield was on top yeah, of the pops yeah, remember that yes. one mm. diana ross and the brontes <laughs> <laughs>
3: i mean we've seen other christmas
1: specials where
3: legs and co especially were yeah. allowed to cut loose a bit from their enforced artificial innocence and mm. stop smiling like halfwits and get a bit sexier you know mm. like as if they were battling for attention against the post christmas dinner bloat you know but here is the exact opposite it's like yeah they're done up in long-sleeved smocks that go from the collarbone right down to the grubby studio floor and when they spin around and around without getting dizzy which is fairly impressive in its way Mm. but not much of a dance routine although you know this isn't much of a dance record you can see that (laughs) They're, they're even wearing petticoats underneath, just in case. Mm.
1: Oh, they're wearing the support garments. I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the thinking was. Do you think Mary Whitehouse has crept in to the dressing rooms? She would
0: have no complaints about this, would she? No. It might have been one of the things that she might have written to the BBC to commend them on, much as she, you know, I think she yes. wrote to ITV commending them on a Beaver documentary once, <laughs> uh, <laughs> suggesting that that should be on Primetime television. It was odd what she found entertaining.
1: But you know, what can you what can you do to this record? I know, let's let's cut to the chase. I fucking hate this song. Uh-huh. It's pure dad divorce pop, isn't it? <laughs> if you were around your mate's ass at any point during the seventies and his dad came back from the pub and put this on or turned it up when it came on the radio that was the fucking sign to leg it out the house and have a really loud and intense game of (laughs) kerber i know what you mean it's awful man it's fucking awful people go on about harry nielsen say oh you must investigate this and that it's like no i've heard this i'm not going any further (laughs) fuck him
0: on one level it's passive aggressive needy emotional blackmail this, this mm. song, it's bombastic, it's oversincere, it's pathetically drunk as well, this song, it sounds. Yeah. Um, I, basically, yeah, I'm going to top myself if you leave. And yes. I, I think the key word is, he goes, I can't live if living lives without you I'd have more respect for the protagonist of the song if he did spell it out in a very teenage way and said I won't live Mm. if living lives without an authentic promise rather than a needy threat I don't believe listening to without you that the singer of this will really do it if you like Mm. and and as a cry for help it's just kind of annoying the one blessing about it is it's shorter than you think This record.
1: And that's amazing, Neil, because as soon as it comes on and you hear it, it's just like, oh, fucking, we're in for a long haul. Mm. It's one of them songs. And it's totally the wrong song for Pans people to dance to, because it's a man's song, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, the
0: one thing in its mitigation is that it did, I think it kept American Pie off the top spot, and I hate that record Mm. even more than I don't like this. But the thing is with the record, and I have to say some positives about it, I think it's arranged really well. Mm. It's very, very clever. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. kind of ahead of its time in that regard. Mariah Carey is, you know, free when this record comes out. But for that kind of singer and for the legions of copycat witness and Mariahs that a show like X Factor would encourage, mm. this is the perfect song to showcase your chops. Because yeah. you've got to do quiet, you've got to do close, you've got to do tender, but you've yeah. also got to belt it out at key points. Yeah.
1: Or you could do it on Bulgarian Idol, or whatever it was called, where that woman turned up and says, I'm going to do this song called Ken Lee. And they were like, what are you going on about? And she started singing it. She thought it was called Ken Lee.
0: Look, I mean, the Badfinger version, right, I think goes on too long. It feels a bit demo-ish. And I, I've heard varying reports about the recording of this song. That um, Jimmy Webb was in the studio next door, right. And said, um, "Can you shut the fuck up?" <laughs> <laughs> He's Jimmy Webb's recording an album of his own in the adjacent studio, and, and according to Jimmy Webb, you know he witnesses what he still considers to be the greatest vocal performance mm. in, in all of pop or rock. It isn't that; it is better than I think than the overlong bad finger version there's actually a demo version of this as well that's even better than this version I do have problems with it because it leads to some pretty horrible records Mm. I mean I think you could draw a direct line from without you to all by myself by Eric Carmen. um and certainly if I was a kid watching this it would be a definitive piss break song it would have annoyed the fuck out of me as a repeated play number one as well much as I would have felt about I don't know those were the days and seasons in the sun Mm. Um, it's one of those isn't it let's get out the room
1: the problem that pans people have here apart from you know being virtually tied up in a sack (laughs) is that this is not a woman's song I mean if they were dressed up as dads in an armchair knocking back a bottle of teachers it would have been more opposite or they should Should have been dressed up as Christmas trees decorated with tears. (laughs) I bet fucking Savile was playing this over and over as he frotted his mum's clothes this Christmas.
3: thing is, of course, it's bitterly ironic that Neil should say that he doesn't believe the singer of this is actually going to do it. I know. know. Actually co-written by two people whose biographies say otherwise. Mm. Yeah. One weird and sometimes wonderful thing about pop music is the way the rules can shift and morph around you and sometimes something which can seem like obvious rubbish can turn out to be magnificent and sometimes something which seems like it should be objectively good ends up feeling a bit unsubtle and overbearing, which Mm. may be what's happened here. Because I don't really like this record either, even before the, the nightmarish pseudo sincere over singers of the modern era have got Mm. anywhere near it right because let's not be in any doubt right harry nielsen was a very talented man and an extremely good Mm. singer at Mm. least until he broke his voice singing drunk and in fact the best thing about this version of this song is the layering of the vocal tracks where he's harmonizing with himself uh, but the more the song comes undone emotionally, the more he splits the vocal tracks and lets them drift away from each other, which works rather better to convey desolation and mental collapse than than the ghastly, overcooked screeching and bellowing, which most people now
1: associate Mm. with this song. Thank God karaoke hadn't been invented in the 70s, man. Fucking (sighs) hell. I mean, this is the Kaylee of the 70s, isn't it, this song?
3: <laughs> but what's weird is that Nielsen was primarily a songwriter. I mean, that's how he got his start. He wrote yeah. Cuddly mm. Toy for the monkeys was his first success, which is mm. a song that I've never liked because it's a bit too delighted with its own naughtiness and, and cleverness. You know, it's a jolly sounding song for the biggest teeny band of the day and it's called Cuddly Toy. And, of course, it's about having it off with a teenage virgin – Uh, although the (laughs) delicately ambiguous morality of the lyrics is a little bit steamrolled by Davy Jones on the record. Um, But he was a songwriter, that was his thing, and yet his two best-known records, the only two Harry Nilsson tracks that anyone's ever fucking heard, are this and Everybody's Talking, which are both covers and both totally unrepresentative of his style. Um, There's a TV Mm. special from, I think, 1971, where he plays a load of his songs on his own on the piano, which mm. demonstrates how beautifully and, and and cleverly and intricately constructed his songs were, yeah. but also how hard it can be to get inside them because they're usually a little bit fiddly and a bit distant because of the way he uses all these old-fashioned 1930s chord progressions and harmonies mm. and stuff. It's what he was into. And he can never resist being a bit playful, you know? Yeah. Uh, mm. But... He was at least unique, and he was not at all the singer of simple major chord ballads that you'd think if you'd only Mm. ever heard him on Top 40 radio. Yeah.
1: He was interviewed in Melody Maker a year from now, and he was asked why he did this song, and he was blatant about it. He he said, we did it because my career was on the wane and we wanted Mm. something to make a hit. You have to have hits. I don't care who you are. If you don't have hits, fuck you without you, gave us that boost we needed, so it was perfect. Yeah. But my reaction then and now is, if you can't live, just fucking die then, please. <laughs> die now and finish this song and let's put something good on. Yeah. That's a kid's reaction, Al. That's a kid's reaction. It yeah. is, it is. But, you know, the child still lives within there. The child that hates Harry Nielsen still dwells within <laughs> there. But the, but the
0: thing is with Nielsen, I, I don't know if anyone else got lost in, the, uh, in reading about him a little bit. Could anyone establish for me how he died? Because I read a story about that when Nielsen passed on, he had a fatal heart attack whilst in the dentist chair in Burbank, California. Not with Gaza. <laughs> they left him. In situ overnight, planning to move his body in the morning. And that night, Burbank got hit by an earthquake, what? and the chair with Nielsen in it was swallowed up by a crevice, no, never not. to be seen again. Now, I don't know if that's Fucking true. No. Or not. I'm just sending that out there. It's, it's a strange end, isn't it? I've Jesus,
3: not heard so. that story, but that'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> if it if
0: was, you've got to go. What a way to go! Yeah. Saves the expense of a funeral and all that. Yeah.
3: See, the yeah. thing about this, it's not even one of the best "Bad Finger" songs.
0: Yeah. That's what's mm, kind of mm. annoying about it. Like, and,
3: and I mean, the story of Badfinger is quite well-known now, but possibly not well-known enough. Like, the, the, you know, everyone knows they were picked up by Apple, the Beatles mm. label, and they were given Come and Get It, which was like, you know, one of Paul McCartney's more commercial cast-offs. But really what fucked them was the fact that Apple was not the best or – not the best organised or most professional yeah. of record companies. Yeah, I've heard that. Entirely stuffed by hippies, right? The head of press being the magnificent Derek Taylor. And if you want mm. a quick, shocking glimpse of how PR has changed in the last 50 years, you have to watch the clip of Derek Taylor being interviewed for American TV on the occasion of the Beatles breakup. And imagine the same thing happening today. Yeah. The biggest thing in the world has just happened. And the world's newsmen assemble in London to get the (laughs) official word from their public relations man, who turns up with a dolly bird in a floppy hat and is very visibly on the wrong or right end of half a bottle of scotch and several big chunky English joints. (laughs) and Proceeds to ramble completely incoherently for 10 minutes. Into mm. the camera. It's wonderful. He starts talking about the Emperor Hirohito for <laughs> no reason. And he concludes some marvelously incomprehensible rant by pointing drunkenly into the camera and saying, If the Beatles don't exist, you don't exist. <laughs> and there's a pause and then he goes, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> He's fucking great. But it gives you an insight into how Apple was being run. It was like, on the one hand, it was that. And on the other hand, like a bloodbath as all that hippie chaos was being bulldozed by financial thuggery of Alan Klein. So as the only good group on Apple, which they were, Mm. uh, apart from the Beatles... um, Hot chocolate? Yeah, but it was when hot chocolate weren't very good. That's the thing. Right. Then they really suffered. They had no guidance. They had dodgy people working Mm. for them. They got into terrible trouble and... All culminated in the in suicide of Pete Ham, co-writer of this song, and then eight years later, the suicide of Tom Evans, the other mm. co-author of this song, because they still hadn't sorted out the shit they were in, which is a horrible story. Yeah, um, it was which,
1: over the royalties for
3: this single, wasn't it? Yeah, all their money basically yeah. got they got swindled out of all their money, mm. and you know the the thing about although the the Badfinger story lights up the disconsolate tone of this song in a slightly different way really the moral of the story isn't comforting either because the moral of the story is sometimes too close is worse than nowhere near
1: Mm. oh that's bleak
3: (laughs) although to lighten the mood here's a a pop quiz question the clue being that it's something of a callback to something we were talking about earlier what does this record have in common with Hey Jude, Life on Mars, Killer Queen, Your Song, Perfect Day, and I Don't Like Mondays, amongst others. Ooh.
0: I'll let you answer this, Neil. Do you know the answer, Al? No. (laughs) (laughs) Is it it to do with the instrumentation of it, Taylor? It
3: is to do with the instrumentation of it, Neil. And
0: is it to do with... um, because I'm 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 sensing no guitar piano. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I shall t- put you out of your misery. Yeah, do so, please. They were all played on the same piano. Ah,
3: yeah, the wow, studio man. piano at Trident Studios in London, which is a remarkable fact. Unless I got some of the songs wrong, in which case I don't <laughs> care at all. But it's at least very close to being. It's a very correct. Although I'm a bit uncomfortable bringing that up, because for a certain class of music nerds, I believe that fact is bordering on a Frank beard, like a Frank right. heavy stubble. If you yeah, will. yeah. <laughs> um, but I went with it because I'd never insult you or our listeners by assuming that any of them are that nerdish or anal or interested in Mm. things that don't really matter
1: so without you would spend five five fucking weeks at number one (sighs) keeping american pie by don mclean and beg steal or borrow by the new seekers off the top eventually giving way to something more upbeat and vital amazing grace by the pipes and drums of the military band of the royal scots Dragoon guards the follow-up Coconut only got to number 42 in June and the only other time he bothered the business end of the charts was when Without You got to number 22 on two non-consecutive weeks in November of 1976. Nielsen would spend the rest of the 70s getting pissed up with Ringo and John Lennon, putting out singles and LPs to diminish in returns, eventually dying in January of 1994. But a week later, Mariah Carey splayed the song out on some chipboard, nailed down its extremities, and gave it the full X Factor blowtorch, <laughs> which went straight in at number one in February and stayed there for four fucking weeks <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> oh man man, I hate to be the one to stop this episode, but stop it, I must because we need to reassemble tomorrow for the denouement of this outstanding episode of Top of the Pop. So, on behalf of Taylor Potts and Neil Kulkarnay, this is Al Needham, asking you quite nicely to stay pop-crazed, won't you? Sharp
2: Chart music.